Hey strangers, welcome to another episode of The Strange Sessions. I am Krista and with me is Kurt who, rest assured, has his podcast podcasting glasses on now. Oh, I thought you were going to say podcasting underwear. Oh, I got well, those he always on too. has those on. I always have those on. It's, those have <laughs> he, lasted. I was like, like, are you ready? He's like, no. And he <laughs> I have my podcasting glasses. glasses on. I have yeah. my podcasting underwear on, but that's all I have on today. So it's gonna. It's a little awkward down here, but <laughs> a little cold. It's a little chilly. It's a little chilly, <laughs> but, probably turn the heat but up. We'll, we'll make do. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Kurt? Uh, eh. 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 We eh. talked about it in the, we did. the pre-show banter that are coffee you're welcome listeners. coffee listeners yeah well, you're welcome for our <laughs> depressing talk about our jobs and lack thereof for some, some of us i have some good news what's the good news for all you bird nerds out there the orioles and the rose-breasted grosbeaks have arrived arrived it's very exciting i don't ever really see orioles oh you have to put special food out for them oh, so well it's pizza? grape jelly yeah oh. pizza a bird after my own heart <laughs> no grape jelly and orange slices that's what they like to eat you got to get them out early. I did not know that. Yeah, and then the scouts come and look for it, and then they bring their friends. So it's crazy. We'll have Orioles all summer now. Huh. I don't even Bird know if nerd. I know what an Oriole looks like. They're beautiful. They're bright, I've seen cardinals. I've seen a lot of cardinals, actually. They're lately. bright orange with like black markings. Well, the males. The females are a little less bright, but yeah. And it sounds like a robin. Like a robin has the orange. Yeah, I'll show you a picture. Okay. Welcome um, to Bird Talk with yeah. Krista. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a total bird nerd. <laughs> and uh, the rose-breasted grosbeaks are black and white, and they have this bright um, like fuchsia color on their uh, chest. So... All right, Oriole, or not the, not the uh, team. Not the, not the baseball team. Nope. I'm a little annoyed because I was actually going to look up how to pronounce one of the things I got to talk about today, and I forgot to look it up. So I don't know. That's how an to... Oriole. It looks okay. I couldn't tell the difference between that and a robin. Oh, robins are more brown. Okay. I don't know. Um, I've just seen cardinals, and cardinals are super pretty. Yeah, and cardinals are um, kind of they're supposed to be symbolic of a. Uh, like a loved one who's visiting you. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's good at least. This is a rose-breasted girl. That's speak. cute. Yeah. That is really cute. Pretty. And we also have a male and female duck hanging out in our backyard. Oh, boy. I named them Frank and Estelle. <laughs> okay. If you're a Seinfeld fan, you know. No. Um, but yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well. <laughs> enough from <laughs> enough for Bird for, Corner. Enough from our Bird Corner. <laughs> hey, if you don't want to listen to me talk about birds for the next 20 minutes, <laughs> Hit pause, check the show notes. Kurt will post the timestamp of the topic start. Do we have strangers to welcome? We have one official new... Oh, we actually have two, but I don't have their name. Uh, Is that the one you texted me? Yes, the one I texted you last night. I can tell you. Okay. You go first. (laughs) Okay. Well, you go first. Jackie Wyatt. Yes. Thank you, Jackie, for joining. And we also want to give a shout out to new stranger, Carrie Weekends, who found us. Like We were suggested when... They were listening to the Haunted Objects podcast. Which I have. Which, <laughs> I just love that show so much. The one I'm listening the, to right the now. Aura? Is Was the, it Auras? Yeah, the Haunted, yeah. the Aura Goggles. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm laughing so yeah, hard. Yeah, but then it, the like, I want to do an episode about Auras now because oh, now I'm fascinated by Auras. We so. should do a test. We should see if we can see Auras. We should because I have people that have seen my Aura, supposedly. Oh, really? What I remember, color is your Aura? I don't remember, but I remember them saying... It was a really interesting combination of colors, and mm-hmm. that mine had sparks coming off of it. Ooh. And I kind of believe in it because, like, people at school have said that they have never seen students just like immediately take to someone, mm-hmm. like immediately. And I do feel like people can sense auras, like you can you can get a vibe from somebody. So I don't know if people can 
like see someone's aura and just not realize that that's what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. So we should. We should do. Yeah, we should try. Later it. this season, we'll do an episode about auras because I used to think it was just hogwash, but I don't know. The more I thought, the more I listen to stuff about it and read stuff about it the more i think there's something to it well give a listen to that episode people because it's really interesting they do talk about like the science of like cones in your eyes and color blindness and how certain people can see more colors and it's a great it's a great show it is a great show. this is going to turn into just a podcast about how much we love (laughs) the new kirks and the haunted objects podcast (laughs) yep and it was just cool that carrie found us as a suggestion yeah, off of that the, show. so that's kind of like a brush with the new kirks i guess yeah so cool we'll, we're gonna go with that so shout out to carrie uh also want to give a shout out to one of my teachers that i work with tim disher who has been listening to the podcast and he What's said up, he really likes it sweet yeah he said uh he said i have a good radio voice See, my friend Megan at work said she loves listening to my voice too. Yeah. And she said yep. you and I have really good chemistry. Yeah. So I think uh I just never liked my voice before. Yeah, so, me either. So it's interesting. But yeah, Tim says he it's really interesting. I wasn't saying I didn't like your voice. Oh <laughs> <No>. <laughs> just to, to Whatever. Clarify. We'll talk about that off the air. Talk to the we'll hand. talk about that off the air. And I want to give, uh, because I don't know if I'm going to be staying at my school, I think there's going to be lots of student shout outs in the next couple of weeks yeah. because I'm going to probably be leaving them. But I want to give a special shout out to one of the students, Brenna Russell, who I think this might have been for art class, but she made me this and brought it one day. It says oh, strange. It's a little With painting a of a cat and it says Aww. strange on it. That is adorable. So Brenna, you are awesome. I absolutely adore you. Thank you so much for giving me this. But it was funny because she came up to me at pack time, which is our recess. And the first thing she said to me was, you know, like, thanks for making me afraid to look in my mirrors now. <laughs> she, listened to, a lot of those. she listened to the mirror episode. and uh, Mirrors like, still don't bother me. They were like, the doll thing. Why would somebody do that? Yeah, that is with the, the doll, creepiest the thing doll ever. Game. So she really enjoyed the episode. But she said Good. it kind of creeped her out from mirrors. But thank you so much, Brenna. I love my little strange cat That's picture. Cute. So we're going to leave that down here. But yeah, there'll be shout outs in the near future for students. Because like I said, I don't think I'll be going. I think my career as a middle school reading aid is done Hmm. i wanted to get the library job but i wasn't even asked to interview for it but i just need a job where i'm not eating ramen noodles every morning for breakfast and i can actually pay the bills without having to sweat how much is in my account so we'll figure something out hopefully something falls in my lap well hey maybe we should start doing video on youtube and we can sorry people get ads because that's what a lot of people make money off of that tiktok influencers I don't, I don't know what that all entails. <laughs> I don't think I'm very influential. But I have influential. to get TikTok because I'm about to cancel my Instagram personal account. I have account. TikTok, but apparently all my students find me on it, but I never go on it. Hmm. I never, ever go on it. Well, yeah, you need to post, don't you? Yeah. Well, you don't need to, but I can still follow people sure. on there. Somebody like, told I do me... follow some of like, the paranormal people in the, work, yeah. in the paranormal field. I follow some of them on there. Somebody told me that if we can easily get millions of followers on TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> That's like or, a cheap. That's like the cheap version yeah, of TikTok. The knockoff version of TikTok. <laughs> but you, I think we'd have to post stuff, and you and I are just not good at that. We well, the students, never take the stu- a lot of the students that listen to the podcast tell me they're like, you guys should do little blurbs on TikTok to get people of like what though? What would just we like? Do? Hey, this is Kurt. This is Krista. <laughs> we run a podcast that's uh, subpar, but listen to it. We can say that every post, <laughs> just a different version of that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, maybe we'll figure it out. We'll at figure some something point. out. I don't even want to be rich. I just want to have enough money where I yeah, don't have to. Same. Where I don't have to. I mean, I'm. Stress. I'm. We're comfortable. I'm not. I'm not saying we're not. We've worked very hard to get where we're at. We have yeah. no debt, whatever. But yeah, I. I don't want to be rich either. Yeah. Like, 
I would love to just do what I love for a living and make enough money to be yeah. able to pay my bills. Yeah, like I mean, you, I have a great you job. Not how many of the students at lunch give me like their string cheese and Aww. their food and stuff so that I have something to eat? Geez, usually it's the other way around. It is. Well, I buy them a ton of stuff too. Trust me, takis, takis, hubba bubble tape gum, oh. uh, all sorts of uh, this new prime drink that's kind of like Gatorade. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to miss like knowing what's cool with the kids and what's not cool with the what's kids. What's being hip? What's hip? Hip hip with the kids? What's hip with the wow. kids? What's down, down with I the never kids? never sounded older. Anyway, <laughs> do, we, do we have any taste <clears throat> test items or do we have any other housekeeping? Um, I did want to mention uh, the book that I've chosen for book oh, yeah. club. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it's starting out really slow and tedious. Um, it is false memory. We're just really taking along. Kurt and I discovered we're both in the same exact spot. Which is like three chapters into the book. Yeah, we're not going to make it in time for when we identified our recording day was going to be. So we're actually going to push it back two weeks. So we were going to record the book club on the 20th. Now we're going to record it on June 3rd. So you have an extra couple of weeks because, yeah. well, we need it. Yeah. It's it's a slow burn. I'm assuming it's going to get better. I just read another. It's not bad. It's just I'm having a hard time like getting into it. Yeah, to, enough where I'm like, oh my god, I want to read. Oh my god, exactly. I want to read. I hope we get to that point uh, soon because I just read another one of his books. This is Dean Koontz. I've read tons and tons of Dean Koontz books. This is the hardest book I've ever had to get into of his. Really? So. <laughs> so yeah, I just read one like a couple of months ago that I could not put down. So I don't. It was like from the get I was into it. And I I talked about this the, is a slow burn. I talked about reading possibly the Twyford Code next, but I did oh, read that yeah. over the last couple of weeks, and it's a great book, but it's very difficult to read okay. because, like I was telling Krista before we started recording. Yeah, after the twelve and a half, or what was the first ten, book? What was oh, our first book? Seven and a half seven deaths and a half. of Evelyn Hardcastle. <laughs> yeah, that was hard to follow. Too. Like this one is too, book. because this one, the whole book is made up of audio audio clips that have been transcribed by software, except it doesn't always get the words right. So part mm. of the challenge of reading it is trying to figure out what the heck they're talking about. So it's very difficult and it's a lot of stuff about like codes and yeah. across, like hidden treasure. It's a good book, but it's very difficult. And we already gave you guys a couple of difficult ones. So Yeah. Yeah. Well you have you have some extra time to pick yep. out your next book. So Do Okay, should I, should I should see what's Just grab here? we have to we should open that one from John. Yep. And I know there's more in this box too from Yeah. Tiana. So let's maybe or let's maybe oh, grab two more things from Tiana and see if there's a foodie item in there that you think you can just grab. Thank you for all this stuff, Tiana. No, but if there, if you have one taste test and like one gifty thing, okay, and then just grab one gifty thing. Ooh, okay. Okay. Ooh, fortune cards. This oh. says super awesome future fortune cards. Oh, hold it up. I'll take a picture. Is this like tarot cards almost? I don't know. That looks super cool, whatever it is. Okay. Let me open it. Kurt, play some crystal opening packages music. Uh, <laughs> da da da. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Ooh, look at that. Came right off. Ooh, cool. That looks neat. It does. Ooh, they're like... They look like tarot cards. They do. For, they're called fortune cards. It says, congratulations on your purchase of super awesome future fortune cards. These cards are a fun way to take a peek into possible future events. Oh, interesting. 
So, oh, okay. You should know that the predictions of these cards are not written in stone, but simply reflect the most likely results of your current path if you don't take actions to change it. The future is in your hands, and you should do everything you can to make it super awesome. Let's learn how to do that in the next episode. We'll do a reading. Okay, I'm not going to open them. That looks awesome. I actually want to see those. Yeah. This is so cool. I didn't know this was a thing. Thank you, Tiana. Thank you so right, much. We have a taste test. Those, yeah, we'll definitely Very do a reading with that next episode. I think you're going to be excited. Oh, next episode, let's do a mini mystery. Oh, so okay. haunted, a haunted, Thanks for the heads up. a haunted area. Oh, there's two. Fruity Pebbles. And oh, Cocoa, I've had, I've had Cocoa the Pebbles. Fruity Pebbles one. So should I taste this one? Yeah, I want to taste the chocolate one. We can, too. we can taste some. Yeah, I'll, we'll each take a small piece of both. Like, uh, like you can keep the Fruity Pebble one. Well, we can try that next time too. But I do want to try the Cocoa Pebbles one because I've had the because Fruity Pebbles is like one of my cereal weaknesses. Like, I love Fruity Pebbles. I mean, I can't. So are we I, tasting them both today? No, let's not? just do the Cocoa Pebbles one today. Okay, then I'll only take a picture. I uh, of the Cocoa I Pebbles. can't have a box of Cocoa or Fruity Pebbles at home because I will literally eat almost the entire box in one sitting. I literally probably haven't had either of these cereals since I was oh my a God, kid. I love Fruity Pebbles. <laughs> okay, let's open this bad boy up. I do remember the Cocoa Pebbles making your milk chocolate. Milk, yep. Chocolate milk. Oh, baby. <laughs> oh, baby. Just give me a little piece. I'm going to throw it to you. Okay. Ooh, nice oh, I caught it. Nice. Okay, let me take a... Anyone watching the coronation of King Charles? Oh, wait, I had it on this morning because I was I up, totally of course, did. at 3 o'clock. And... I wasn't up, but they had a live feed on YouTube that I was watching. This is weird. Must be dark out here. Dark down, dark down here, and I'm trying to take a picture of a of dark chocolate. chocolate. I can. It smells good. Yes, it does. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. Mm. Oh. Mm. That's totally, totally Cocoa Pebble. Mm-hmm. That's totally Cocoa Pebble. Mm-hmm. That's I really thought it good. was just gonna taste like a crunch bar. Mm-mm. That's really good. Yeah, it's literally mm. cereal is literally in here. Mm. Mm. I can't mm. talk today. Mm. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is oh, very Reeb. that is very cocoa pebbly. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yum. Mm. I would give that a ten out of ten. I mean, I don't know how they could improve on it. Yeah, that's amazing. The chocolate. The it's good. Ch- chocolate is really good yeah. too. It's like a good quality chocolate. 10 out of 10 for me. We've only had one kind of stinker. What was as it? As far as taste test. What was it? Um, well, that, the pickle. Uh, oh, we can- I still like the pickle candy. cotton candy. Hmm? I still like the pickle cotton candy. Yeah. We didn't like it during the taste test. Nothing will ever be as bad as our, our uh, thunder salts. Didn't we taste something fish flavored once? Too, there was that something was, that, like, we, that was worse than thunder salts. I don't mm-hmm. remember what it was. I probably blocked it from my memory. I couldn't even finish the dunder sauce. This is really good. Uh-huh. Okay. You want to take this home? Unless you guys want it. Nope. Okay. I will definitely take it home. Mm. I pour milk on that and make cereal. Really gooey chocolate cereal. That sounds good. Okay. I guess everybody listens to Krista take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast is just a series of me doing stuff in the background that you can't hear. Pretty much. <laughs> and we want to make money doing this. That's hilarious. Okay. Now what? Well, now you talk while I'm chewing my... Oh, um, okay. 
It was raining this morning. I wasn't expecting it to rain. Yeah, we didn't talk about the weather. What the heck? It didn't snow like it was. Yeah, it snowed. <laughs> May 1st. Like a week ago, yeah. yeah. Welcome to Wisconsin. Yeah. It's going to be 70s today, I think. Is it going to be? I think 70 today, high, a little higher tomorrow, thunderstorms. I have to go to the school forest and hide the, some of the geocaches because I'll be out there again. Did I tell you I got a tick at the school forest? Yes, yeah. you did. I'm so now still I'm horrified now I'm scared by that. to go out there. And I still have a spot where the tick was, but I don't think it was a Lyme disease one. And like I said, I feel like garbage all the time anyway. I don't even know how Lyme disease would make me feel anymore. The, the, <laughs> the, the deer tick, I believe, are the ones that have the Lyme disease, like the bigger, and they're the really, tick. really, really small. Oh. They're much, much smaller, I think, than like a normal wood tick. Well, that's probably the one I had then. Was it deer tick? I don't, I don't know. I don't think I feel. I think they're like the size of a pin, like the head of a pin. Oh, I could be totally wrong. Might be. (laughs) Do not take any of this as fact. (laughs) Better with birds than she is with insects, folks. Yes. (laughs) I'm glad everybody. A lot of people liked the mirror episode. Yeah. And I'm glad they did. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Corey, I think, was it Corey that was like, he saw what it was about. And he's like, I don't know how they're going to drag on talking about mirrors. But he's like, yeah, you guys did. That was a long episode, wasn't it? Wasn't it was a really long. Oh, like I big... had to post it in two parts on You shouldn't coffee. have had to, though, because when mm. I imported into Audacity and saved it as MP3, it was plenty small enough. So you must have your settings different. Because I had it I was, set to like the lowest I was mine's quality. At, mine's at medium quality, and I was able to put it on YouTube as That's a whole weird. chunk. So I must do something a little differently than you do. Yeah, it was that MP3 toolbox. That's what wouldn't let me. It said it was too big of a file to convert to MP4. No, because I made it. It was plenty small enough when I saved it after Audacity that I was able to convert it to an MP4. Hmm. So we must do something a little different. We'll figure it out one of these. Yeah, eh, maybe next maybe season. Maybe by our tenth season, we'll figure something out. <laughs> sure. Are we jumping right into this bad boy? Let's do it. Twenty-seven minutes later, we. Well, plus we talked for like ten yeah, minutes. We did. Today we are doing another strange states episode. Woohoo! Check to make sure my microphone is on. It's and on. This one is all about that tiny little state. A lot of you might not know called Texas. Have you ever been to Texas? I have been to Texas. Have you? I have. Did I've I been know to, that? Um, southern. So my grandparents used to. I just put Willie on my microphone. Willie. Um, Willie. I my um. Grandparents used to winter in Texas. I've been to South Padre Island. Where did they stay? I can't remember the little. It was very southern Texas because they took us into Mexico while we were down there. I can't remember where they stayed. I'll come up with it. Okay. That, I so was... yes, I did take one trip to Texas. It was really cool. I think I was down there. Was it just once when 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 Natalie moved up here? We moved Natalie up from Texas. Oh, Texas yeah. is big. Like I remember, yeah, it's big. I remember us driving from. I think it was Fort Harlingen. Worth. Sorry, Harlingen oh, is where okay. my grandparents would winter. It was us driving from Fort Worth to. I think we went through Louisiana. Didn't like Louisiana. No. No, I still have this weird like dislike of Louisiana. And why? I don't, know exactly, I don't know why. I remember okay. it smelling really yucky, like swampy, and oh. just being like I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, Louisiana listeners. Yeah, like I don't, I like make me like Louisiana because I just have like, if I had to pick my least favorite state, I would pick Louisiana, and I don't know why. I mean, nothing bad happened there. We I don't hit have the overhang of the state. hotel with our U-Haul, and they were like, just they're like, whatever, <laughs> they didn't care. <laughs> like, but eh. it's like, yeah, uh, but I just don't like Louisiana, and I don't know. Maybe like, we'll why. have to do a strange state, and you'll fall in love with Possibly. it. Possibly, there's Possibly. probably some critter cryptid that you're gonna adore. Nothing there. like squonk. Nothing yeah. like squonk. There's not a lot of cryptids I adore in this episode. That's for sure. But uh, we're gonna start with ten fun facts about Texas. 
You ready? I'm ready. Number 10, the Bucky's Convenience Store in, I don't know, I never knew how to pronounce this name, Braunfels, B-R-A-U-N-F-E-L-S. Yeah, that sounds I've right. seen it a couple times. The Bucky's Convenience Store in New Braunfels, Texas, holds the record for the world's largest convenience store coming in at a massive 66,335 square feet. That's a convenience That's store? That's a convenience it's store. It's like a Walmart. Yeah. That's a convenience store. All right. Fun fact. It's not very convenient if it takes you 10 minutes to get to the other side of the store. Right? Yeah, segue. Uh, fun fact number nine. Krista is not going to like this one. It is completely legal to shoot and kill Bigfoot if you see him or her in Texas. That's rude. That is a rude. Number eight. Austin is the live music capital of the hey, world, which at is least true. Though, at least, though. They're admitting he's real. Yeah, because... that's true. That's true. Number eight, I was actually going to have more for this one, but I forgot to look it up. Austin is the live music capital of the yep. world. Like, you can't throw a stone without hitting a Austin venue, a venue that uh, has live music, yeah. like Austin. I love Austin. There's something about Austin that, especially because of Dazed and Confused, mm. took place in yep. Austin and was filmed in Austin. If you ha- Have you ever watched Austin City Limits? A couple times. I've been watching that since I was a kid. It's really? such a great concert series. Yeah. So good. I've, I've watched it like when there's a band that I really like on it. Fun fact number seven. This comes from facts.net. And I never knew this. Texas barbecue tradition has four types. West Texas, East Texas, Central Texas, and South Texas. For instance, East Texans marinate the barbecue meat using a sweet tomato-based sauce and cook it over hickory wood until the meat is ready to fall off the bone. The South Texan barbecue uses a molasses-like sauce to keep moist the barbecue meat, while the West Texans cook their meat over direct mesquite wood heat. Meanwhile, the Central Texans use spices, salt, and pepper and rub it into the meat and cook it on pecan or oak wood. Mm, So I did not know that there are... That many different kinds of barbecue, I guess. I'm just not like a barbecuey guy. Yeah, no, I know. I know there's like the tomatoey base. There's like a vinegar base. Like I know there's different types of sauces that people are really like passionate about. Yeah. But like we have a barbecue place in town that I've never been to. And one of the students, uh, Lucian, one of my students, and I have this weird obsession with cornbread. Like every, oh. like. Students will ask me, like students will ask me to bring them bags of takis, which are like the big thing with the kids, like spicy. It's like a spicy chip. But bringing bags of takis or Cool Ranch Doritos, and he came to me one day and he's like, "Could you bring me cornbread next time we go to festival?" And that was like the weirdest request I ever got. <laughs> so I got it for him. So now we talk about it's cornbread so all the time. I love cornbread and butter. Oh my mm-hmm, god! Mm-hmm. Fun fact number six: Six flags have flown over Texas. Spanish. French, Mexican, Republic of Texas, Confederate, and United States. Hmm. And that's where Six Flags gets its names from. Gets its okay. name from. Fun fact number five, I had no idea. This just kind of blows my mind. The King Ranch in South Texas is larger than the entire state of Rhode Island. <gasps> the King Ranch is covers 1,289 square miles, and Rhode Island is 1,212 yeah, square miles. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy that what there is... What is the King Ranch? It's, it's just a big just a ranch. ranch. Yeah. Okay. But it's bigger than the state of Rhode Island. I mean, mm-hmm. Rhode Island's not big, but holy cow. Yeah, but still. This little you part could... of Texas. How many is... states can you fit inside Texas? <laughs> Probably quite a few. <laughs> Texas is big. Number four. This one comes from bestlifeonline.com. Uh, an article called 25 Crazy Facts About Texas. And I had to include this one because right now I'm just like so utterly obsessed with the show Friday Night Lights. 
Fun fact number four, in Texas, football is no joke. In fact, in 2014, the small town of Decatur, Texas, voted to reschedule Halloween to October 30th because the October 31st date would have conflicted with the local high school's Friday night football game. Wow. Nearly 14% of the state's high school stadiums boast video scoreboards, and the high school football game with the all-time highest attendance record was a 2013 playoff game that brought together 54,357 fans. For, Dang, yeah, for high school For a high football. school football game. Wow. You know, like watching Friday Night Lights. I never I never thought that, but it's like a religion there. Like mm-hmm. like the town shut down. Yeah. And again, Friday Night Lights, oh my God, is that a good show? Like I absolutely love that show considering that I don't even like football. <laughs> right. It's such a good show other than the fact that like the high school, every now and then they say, you know, you high schoolers and it's like the guy looks like he's 35. Right. You know? Yeah. So it's... But such a good, sh- good show. But yeah, like football is, is a big thing down there. Number three, I know because I read about it in the Days and Confused book. Mm. Austin is home to the world's largest urban bat colony. If you're in Austin between March and October, you can catch a glimpse of the South Congress Avenue Bridge bats, the largest urban colony of bats in the world. Around sunset, the city's 1.5 million bats take off into the night, and it's nothing short of a sight to behold. If you pay attention, you'll find bat symbols and illusions all over Austin. That's really cool, actually. It is, because they talked about in the Days Confused book that Matthew McConaughey, I think, would take people there, where people, like, bring blankets, and they just wait, and as soon as the sun goes down, like, under this bridge, just, like, swarms and swarms of bats that, like, block out the sky. That's cool. Yeah, it is cool. I'd like to check that out. And fun fact number one. Oh, I didn't do weird laws in this one. Holy cow. And there's got to be some weird laws There's got to be some weird laws. Maybe next episode I will have, I will add. Yeah, the housekeeping, I will (laughs) add some weird. I totally blanked on that. Holy cow. Fun fact number, we'll just say number one and a half because I'll have number one next time. Fun fact number one and a half. In 1993, the fictional Sawyer family house from the original 1973 Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie was picked up and moved to the grounds of the Antlers Hotel in Kingsland, Texas, and it is currently used as a restaurant. Oh. So, yeah, I guess. From the original Texas The original Chainsaw. Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. Okay. Like, they, nothing was being done with it, so they loaded it up on trucks and they moved it to this. And they turned it into a restaurant. And they turned it into a hotel. It's just like an old farmhouse, Yeah, right? it's like just an old farmhouse, but, okay. like, I was never, I've seen bits and pieces of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I was never nuts about it. But it's one of those movies that people just love yeah. and they recognize that house. Like, I can recognize the Psycho sure. House, the oh, Amityville yeah. Horror House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house, I can't. More from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah, so that's a hotel okay. right now. So next episode, I will have some weird yeah. Texas laws. Cool. I cannot believe I totally blanked on that. Anyway, are you ready to jump into cryptids slash creatures? Kurt, do you have to ask? I don't have to ask. I don't think any of these are cuddly. <laughs> Just double. We should have like a cuddle scale for all. We should the have cryptids. a. We should come up with a cuddle, cuddle scale. ability. Yeah, squonk would definitely be like a ten. A ten for snuggles. <laughs> yeah, I don't see. I don't see me snuggling up to any of these. Um, number. Where am I here? Well, I went way down. Okay, number. You would think we've done this podcast before, but eh. don't know. Definitely not cuddling up at number six. Number seven, the NASA gargoyle. From the Monster Wiki, it says, quote, 
The story of the NASA gargoyle was related to noted cryptozoologist author Neck, Neck Redfern, Nick Redfern by one Desiree Shaw, who told Redfern in 2006 of her father Frank's 1984 encounter with the beast. According to Shaw, her father had been an employee at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration's Johnson Space Center, Houston, at the time. After finishing his shift one evening, he was crossing the parking lot on the way to his car when he happened to glance at one of the nearby buildings. Perched atop the building was a monstrous creature which Shaw could only describe as resembling one of the gargoyles that adorn many churches and other buildings dating from Europe's medieval period. Shaw quickly realized that the gargoyle was staring directly at him and had the distinct impression that it was taking great pleasure in the terror that it had instilled in him. After a few moments of staring at each other, the gargoyle slowly began to unfurl its great wings with a sound like dried paper. This act seemed to break the almost hypnotic state that Shaw had been in, and he raced to his car and sped home without a backwards glance. Although initially reluctant to report what he had seen to his superiors, the effect of the encounter on Shaw began to get the better of him, and he eventually related his story to one of his bosses. Much to his relief, rather than being met with the ridicule that he had expected, Shaw was informed that the gargoyle had been seen by other employees at the Johnson facility and was in fact believed to have been behind the brutal mutilation and exsanguination of a pair of the base's German Shepherd guard dogs. The dogs Yikes. did not live that one. Aww. He was also told that a secret file had been opened on the entity, but if such a document exists, it had never been made available to the public. Believing this to be the end of this ordeal, Shaw was surprised when he was soon hauled in front of NASA security people that were flown in from somewhere in Arizona who proceeded to interrogate him on his experience and made it very clear that he and his family would do well to keep the matters to themselves. This may be the reason why this encounter took so long to come to public attention. To this day, NASA has neither conformed, confirmed nor denied the existence of the creature shited, shited, shited. <laughs> cited by Shaw and the other employees. So that is the NASA gargoyle. Yeah, not super cuddly. Not super cuddly. What do you think that kind of sounds like? And there's another Mothman. one. Mothman. Yep, there's another one in here that sounds like a lot like the Mothman, mm -hmm. too. And that's almost exactly what this sounds like is like mm -hmm. a Mothman type yeah. figure. So I don't know. Because the Mothman can be like kind of gargoyle-ish. Mm -hmm. And especially spreading the wings. The wings, that's what I yeah, thought of. Making like the crumply paper sound, which mm -hmm. I think I remember hearing from some of the... I want to have another episode about Mothman this season too. Yeah. Sometime. I'd love to have Tobias here. I got Of course. I got partway through the Mothman prophecies and then I got caught up in all of our book club stuff. Yeah. I have to get back to that. But yeah, so that's the NASA gargoyle. The NASA gargoyle. Number six... The Donkey Lady of San Antonio. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Probably not high on the cuddle factor. It depends on how her body's configured, I guess. Yeah. Like if she had like a human body and like the face of a donkey, that would be kind of cute. Maybe. But a, from a KSAT.com article called, quote, South Texas Haunted Folklore, The Tale of the Donkey Lady, it says, The story of the Donkey Lady is known throughout San Antonio and South Texas. There are many variations of how the donkey lady came to be, but the paranormal incidents reported at the bridge off Elm Creek are all similar. Here's a version of the donkey lady story by author Michael Mays. Years ago, most agree that sometime in the mid-1800s, a settler, settler woman lived near the banks of Elm Creek with her husband and two children. The couple was barely making a living from farming the stingy South Tech soil and raising a few head of livestock. 
One day, the son of a wealthy San Antonio merchant came riding onto or near their property. Somehow, the young man came into contact with a horse or mule belonging to the Pioneer family. The young man, the story goes, teased the animal and hit it with a stick. What a jerk. Yeah. The poor animal retaliated in the only way it knew how and bit the merchant's son. Enraged, the young man began to beat the animal even more severely than before. The poor creature's cries reached the ears of the pioneer couple, and they quickly rushed to the scene. It became obvious to the couple that their animal, no doubt vital to their livelihood, was about to be beaten to death. The couple began throwing rocks at their animal's assailant and pelted him several times. They did not realize this young man was the son of an important man in town. The young man hurled a string of expletives at the couple as he retreated, but swore that he would get even with them. That night, a party of men, led by the wealthy merchant and his son, stealthily approached the young family's cabin and set fire to it with torches. The heavily armed men refused to allow anyone inside the cabin to leave. Desperate, the man of the house attempted to make a break for it in the hopes that his wife and children could escape while he distracted their attackers. He was gunned down almost immediately upon setting foot outside the cabin. The screams of the woman and her children as they burned alive were heard up and down the creek for over a mile. Just as the mob was sure that their unholy task was done, a figure engulfed in flames smashed through what was left of one of the cabin windows and staggered towards the stunned and now terrified men. The woman's hand seemed to have been burned down to mere nubs, and her face appeared to have melted or sagged to the point that it was unnaturally long and deformed. The poor creature's clothes were gone, burned away, revealing skin charred completely black, yet somehow still on fire. Man, I hope no strangelings are listening to this yeah. and are like traumatized. The, the wretched creature, this is a st- I don't think this is true, but this is a story that one of the people have for how it came to be. Yeah. The wretched creature that had once been a happy, sod-busting wife and mother let out a bone-chilling wail and then staggered past the men and hurled herself off the bank and into the waters of Elm Creek. The criminal mob followed to the point from which she had launched herself into the black water but saw no trace of her. Her body, it is said, was never found. Photos do exist of damage allegedly done to vehicles by the donkey lady. It's said that if you park on that bridge, shut off your headlights and wait, you will almost certainly encounter something truly terrifying. Well, this is gruesome. That is gruesome. From a scarystudies.com article... It says, the donkey lady in San Antonio had endured throughout the years and is well known to people in and around the area. Over the years, a lot of people have traveled to the famous donkey lady bridge to catch a small glimpse of the lady herself. For many, the experience has been somewhat unsettling where they have experienced nerves and jitters owing to an intense feeling of being watched by some entity from a distance. Some people who have driven to the bridge actually report seeing a gruesome face resembling a donkey screaming at them through their car windows. That's creepy. <laughs> that is creepy. Many of these people has have also many of these people have also later found indentations on their car bodies that look like they were stamp marks made by a donkey's hoofs. Many who have visited the bridge have heard the steady clapping of hooves, but have not seen the lady herself. At present, it is no longer possible to drive over the actual Donkey Lady Bridge as the authorities have placed a gate over it to discourage visitors. Based on this, the place still attracts curious visitors all year round. The legend of the Donkey Lady has firmly cemented its place into Texan folklore. There's even a Donkey Lady hotline where you can experience the voice of the Donkey Lady over (laughs) the phone. (laughs) We should call that. We should start our own hotline. Maybe that's how I could make money. Hey. (laughs) Uh, Sexy strangers. So this comes from Reddit. This is a story from Reddit. <laughs> okay. 
When I was in elementary school back in the 80s, there used to be a number that you could call that played hoof sounds, which was supposed to be the sounds of the donkey lady running. Oh my God. And the story was that if you called it and the sound stopped while you were still it's on like the phone. It's like a dude with some coconuts yeah. on the other side <laughs> <laughs> Like the Monty Python yes. horse. Uh, the story was that if you called it and the sound stopped while you were still on the phone, then the donkey lady was coming for you. Oh, man. I had friends over once and they called it and they all heard the cloppity clops of the hoof sounds. But by the time they passed the phone to me, of course, I heard nothing. They all got scared and left. And then I accidentally locked myself out of the house. Oh, jeez. I had to wait in the backyard for my mom to come home hours later. Wow. Back during that time, there were lots of numbers you could call that were supposed to be fun for kids. A joke hotline, storytelling, chat rooms, Pac-Man sounds, and apparently murderous half-woman, half-donkey creatures. Somebody else on Reddit writes, All right, so, you might think this is BS, but I had somewhat of an experience. We went to some old road near Applewhite Road. It was a fenced-off cemetery. It was my friends and I in two separate cars, maybe like eight of us total. We go up to the gate, which is locked, to have a looky-loo. My brother, who was against this whole ordeal because ghosts aren't real and making fun of everyone trying to scare them, yada yada, his car is parked in front, and I'm right behind him in my car. It was around 1 o'clock a.m. I'm sitting there idling. Nothing is happening, so I just turn off my car, but leave my headlights on. They get out to mess around, and my brother just runs back into his car, and his friends follow. We meet up later after that, and he says that when he turned his car off, he noticed fog forming behind the gate on the ground. He thought nothing of it and just kept on. Then after, he saw something come out of that fog, and he thought it was a person, but it, but it wasn't. He said, it looked, he said he looked at its face, and it was some disfigured thing. He couldn't say man or woman. He said it just like, like a person with a really messed up face. My brother is not one to believe in spooks, but he said that was the only thing that freaked him out. This was like 12 years ago in the summer. I don't know if it was the donkey lady or what. I did go to the donkey lady bridge a few months after this incident, and the only thing I witnessed was a lot of graffiti. <laughs> so there you go. That is the story of the donkey lady. The donkey lady. Not terribly cud- cuddly. No. Not on the squonk Kinda meter. Gruesome. On the squonk meter, that is pretty low on not the squonk very, meter. Not very squonkable. No, but if it would have been like a cute girl in a dress with a donkey face, that's kind of <laughs> cute. That's a different story. That's a different story. This is the one that I was going to look up how to pronounce, and I worry I'm going to massacre it, but I think it's La Lacusa. Okay. L-E-C-H-U-Z-A. Sure. La Lacusa. That sounds right. This is a big one in, in the southern like Texas, New Mexico, in that area. Okay. So this is number five, La Lacusa. From an article on the Scary Mommy blog called, quote, The Creepy Mexican Legend of La Lacusa is the Stuff of Nightmares, the article says, The spooky story of La Lacusa started centuries ago and is rooted in Mexican and Texano folklore. Legend has it Lacusa was a witch who was exposed for practicing the devil's magic. The townsfolk weren't happy with her, so they just murdered her. Seems reasonable. Sure. <laughs> to enact her revenge, she came back as a creepy bird lady. In fact, she's a shapeshifter who can appear as an ordinary witch during the day and then as a huge bird with a woman's face at night. Maybe that's what I'll be. Maybe if you see one of those lady. in your backyard. <laughs> or maybe if you see, <laughs> if you see a, a huge bird with a woman's face, let me know. <laughs> Try to get a picture. To give you an idea of what we're talking about here, lacusa means owl in in Spanish, I think. So basically, La Lacusa is a huge owl lady who kills people. Her description varies. Some describe the creature as large as seven feet tall with a 15-foot wide wingspan and the face of an old woman, while others describe it as a small bird with the face of an old woman. Either way, she sounds scary AF. Do you know what AF means? 
I'll tell you when we're off the air. I know what AF means. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm she not does that sound, old. She does sound scary AF. Yeah. Uh, she only comes out at night. This is pretty common for most scary things. And owls. She flies through <laughs> the air or perches on trees looking for things, mostly people, to kill. If you hear a bird screech at night, that's an omen that La Lacusa is out and is looking for her next meal. It's said she likes going after children and drunk people wandering through the woods, so we gotta have <laughs> up a, here would be prime. Yeah, Wisconsin. Northern Wisconsin would be people. prime spot for <laughs> the for North some, Woods are full of drunk for some people McNuggets. I'm just kidding, I don't know that. <laughs> Sorry, Northwoods people. She poses as a baby. Once she finds a target, she disguises her voice like a baby's That's and will creepy. cry outside your door waiting to pounce on you no. and swoop you away forever. I don't like that. Again, this is no ordinary bird. She is known to carry away full-grown men within her talons. If you find unexplained scratches on your door, well, you know who was there waiting for you. Yep. She might even whistle or screech annoyingly outside your window until you're so irritated that you'll open your window and bam, she will pounce on you and scratch your eyes out. Oh my gosh. Yep. If she's particularly hungry, she has no problem selecting a car filled with people as her next meal and will run you off the road so she can eat you. Normally, you might want to swerve to avoid hitting a bird, but maybe with this one, just gun it. <laughs> well, this all sounds perfectly plausible. Yeah. Legend has it that if you try to shoot her dead, you'll end up dead instead. How does this work? Who knows? How is a Gile <laughs> Owl lady killing people? It's like I wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's very sarcastic. Totally nonsense. Yep. Or nonsensical. <laughs> yep. And if you dream about her, well, that might mean someone in your family will die. Oh, geez. So it's a bad omen? Yeah. There have been instances where people have encountered La Lacusa, and instead of killing them, she merely showed them her presence. Good, right? <gasps> No, just by seeing her often indicates something even more sinister and dangerous to come, like a deadly hurricane or a tornado. So even if you do see her and she doesn't hurt you, well, bad stuff is still going to go down. So she's basically Mothman. Basically Mothman okay. with a lady's face. <laughs> Lacuzas, Moth lady. Lacuzas have the power to control the weather. So if they want to create a thunderstorm that make the roads incredibly dangerous, wow. they can. This sounds very missing 411-ish, though. This sounds like missing 411-ish. Like it controlled the weather. It can make yeah. people stop searching. It can pick people up and carry them away. This explains all disappearances. Yeah. La Lacuza. If you find that you have a La Lacusa in your life, good news. There are a few ways to get rid of them. You can drive one away with salt, or you can try screaming and cursing at it. Or <laughs> tying seven knots in a rope and hanging it by your front door helps, as does throwing chili powder into its face. I think throwing chili powders in somebody's face will, no matter what it is, <laughs> that, that's going yeah, to drive anyone away. Just start carrying chili powder with you to throw in things' faces uh. if they come after you. Sure, it's inexpensive. Yep. Basically, it's rare to encounter La Lacusa and survive. So if you see her, well, don't say we didn't warn you. Uh, so yeah, that's from the Scary Mommy blog, which is actually yeah. a really good blog. Like, it's very snarky. I'll say. That is La Lacusa. And the, snarky Mommy and blog. And finally, this totally sucks and is horrible. But in August 2014, a video of villagers interrogating and burning an owl alive went viral. The villagers said the owl was really a Lakuza, and its screams as it was being burned were the witch screaming. Some social media users condemned the incident as superstition gone wrong, leading to animal cruelty. And Heck as yeah. owls are like one of my favorite animals, oh. that is just heartbreaking because yes, I adore owls. I love owls and turtles. Those are my, hmm. those are my spirit animals. That's disturbing. Yeah. So that is La Lakuza. If you see it, toss some chili powder at it and run away. Or Takis. Takis will probably work because they're really spicy <laughs> and powdery. Creature cryptid number four, 
the Lake Worth monster. Okay, and there is uh shoot, I was gonna send you this. Uh, check your phone. I'm gonna send you. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna text ready. you a picture of the Lake Worth, one of the captured photos of the Lake Worth monster. Are you ready? I'm ready. There's the Lake Worth monster. A lot of this comes from Wikipedia and the Cryptid Wiki. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. So it's a misty blob. It looks like fluff. It looks like a big pile of dandelion fluff. Yep, that's exactly what it uh, looks A like. lot of this comes from Wikipedia. And in, in our teaser picture, this is one of the pictures that's in our teaser picture. Okay. That's, that's the Lake Worth monster. Hmm. A lot of this comes from Wikipedia and the Cryptid Wiki. In Texan folklore, the Lake Worth monster is a legendary creature said to inhabit Lake Worth at the Fort Worth Nature Center and Refuge just outside Fort Worth. I was in Fort Worth. The creature is often described as, quote, part man, part goat, with scales and long clawed fingers. Reports of sightings by local citizens of a half man, half goat with fur and scales in July of 1969 led to the belief that a mysterious creature lived in Lake Worth. According to a TexasHillCountry.com article called, quote, Dive into the Terrifying Legend of the Lake Worth Monster, the article says, Lake Worth, just west of Dallas and just east of Fort Worth. In the middle of the lake is a landmass known as Greer Island, where the monster was alleged to have roamed. The creature has become known as Fort Worth's answer to Bigfoot. Although stories and sightings of the creature have been common for a few years, attracting many young thrill-seekers and skeptics, the first photograph didn't surface until 1969. That's the photo that you have there. Okay. Of, even though it's supposed to be goat-like, it looks like a big blob of fluff. Yep. A few couples that have seen the Lake Worth monster were the first to do so, and soon it became a phenomenon. Reporter Jim Mars followed up on the story and wrote an article which made front-page news. The headline was, quote, Fishy Man Goat Terrifies Couples Parked at Lake Worth. Fishy Man Goat? Fishy Man Goat. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the couples described it as a goat and man-like, as goat and man-like with fur and scales. So it's a combination of fish, a goat, and a man, I guess. Okay. John Reichardt's car was supposedly damaged by the Lake Worth monster after it jumped out of a tree. As proof, he had a foot and a half long scratch on it. According to Sally Ann Clark's book, quote, The Lake Worth Monster of Greer Island, the monster jumped onto the hood of a man's car. The man reported that he and two other men were out on the island looking for the creature. When the creature landed on the hood, the man said that he swerved his car, his swerved his car wildly about the road, and the monster did not let go until the man crashed into a nearby tree. A witness, Jim Stevens, reported that he himself was 6'4", and the creature was easily much taller than him. Stevens claims that the monster was at least 7 feet tall, if not taller. He described the creature as, quote, real big and human-like with burn scars all over its face, arms, and chest. Many other eyewitnesses also claim that the monster is half goat, half man, and is also covered in scales. Only one day after Reichardt's incident, reports came in of a creature hurling a tire from a bluff at a group of bystanders. In October of 1969, a man named Alan Plaster took a picture of the Lake Worth monster as it rose up on a bluff, which is the only photographic evidence of the creature. That's the picture you have. I'll post it in the group in the strangers. Okay. Local police investigated the claims, but found no evidence of the monster in the Lake Worth or Greer Island area. According to one reporter, the Goatman legend was spread via summer camp stories where camp counselors told children to, quote, listen carefully and you'll hear his cry on clear nights like tonight. Over the years, there have been alleged sightings of the creature. 
KDFW, a Fox-owned television station in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, did a lengthy report in November of 1999 about the Lake Worth monster. It interviewed some of the people who saw it, such as reporter Jim Mars and Sally Ann Clark. The report concluded with the announcement that a group of friends admitted to the police that they had pranked people by dressing up in a gorilla suit and parading around the lake in 1969 when they were in high school. Then in 2005, a reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram received an anonymous letter from someone claiming to be one of three high school classmates who, in the summer of 1969, decided to go out to Lake Worth and scare people using a tinfoil mask. Alan Plaster, the man who snapped the famous photo of the woolen beast, thinks that he himself was mistaken about what he saw all those years ago. According to Plaster, he thinks that what he witnessed was a hoax and that he was most likely the victim of someone playing a prank. Hmm. And in 2009, a man came forward and admitted that in 1969, he was rolling a tire along with some friends on a bluff. The tire rolled away from him, hit a bump, went into the air, and landed <laughs> close to a group of bystanders. Oh, okay. But according to comments on some of the pages, one person writes, quote, I've seen this thing with my sister and my two cousins at another nearby lake. Another person writes that the thing that confuses me with the photo is that it claimed to be a man in a gorilla suit, yet it appears white and fluffy despite the dark conditions. I also live near Fort Worth and Lake Worth, and there are a lot of weird noises but and sightings around the area. It looks like it was taken with like night vision or something. Yeah, because it's like bright. And so that's what dark things appear white. Possibly. I mean, I don't know. People like people do claim to have seen this thing. Hmm. But the people that started this thing said that it was just like a prank. But then other people say that the people saying it's a prank are people trying to cover up the fact that there actually is a Lake Worth <laughs> monster out there. Conspiracy. It's like a big conspiracy. So basically, I don't know. Hmm. Like the picture doesn't really impress me a whole lot. No. It looks like, I don't know what nothing. it looks like. It looks like nothing. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, that, there's something there. You but... know, the, the Lake Worth monster throwing the tire off the bluff. The guy said that they were rolling a tire, got away yeah. from him and... You know, took a, jump like the, took a jump like the Duke boys and almost <laughs> hit a launched group off of, a... launched off a ramp. And so I don't know. That's But since 2009, which was the 40th anniversary of the sightings, the Fort Worth Nature Center and Refuge has held a Lake Worth Monster Bash each October. Well, hey, of course, it's a reason to party and drink It's here. Texas. There's barbecue, I'm sure. Yep. So yeah, there you go. Okay. What do you think of the... Talk a little because I got to have a oh. little sip. Talk, what do you think about the Lake Worth Monster? Um, I'm not sure he's worth the time. See what I did there? <laughs> I did see what you did there. I don't know. It's cuddly just, on the cuddly scale. Uh, In that picture, it looks fluffy and comfortable. Yeah, it doesn't look scaly and half no. goat. It looks. It looks like a big man, big cotton ball. Basically. I mean, it's almost reminiscent of like a Bigfoot out, outline. If I'm being honest, you yeah. Know what I mean, like, yeah. I mean, I can see where there's maybe an arm. Yeah, I can kind of see a shape in there, and this definitely looks like it was not. It was taken with I a don't know, flash. Or night vision, you know what I mean? But they didn't have night vision in 1969. Oh, well, military maybe did. Yeah. But why would a normal person? So I don't know. I'm on the fence about the late the Fort Worth monster. Yeah. The Lake Worth monster. All these sound made up. If I'm being honest. <laughs> and for Krista, as always, we got to do number three: yes, Bigfoot. Yes, 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 yes. According to the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, or BFRO, and man, I apologize that I didn't get a whole lot done on this episode, I feel, because once I go to that BFRO page and start looking at all the states and reading people's accounts... It's a rabbit it's hole. It's a rabbit hole. Yep. All of a sudden, it's like an hour's gone, and I've just been looking at nothing but Bigfoot stories. What happened? Stories. Well, Bigfoot stories. <laughs> Where am I? Yeah. Did I get abducted? <laughs> yeah, so I spent a lot of time looking at Bigfoot stories. 
According to the BFRO, Texas has the seventh highest number of credible Bigfoot sightings of all the states. East Texas, where the majority of the reported sightings of Bigfoot occur in the state, boasts nearly 12 million acres of forest land. Dang. That is a lot yeah. of acres of forest land. So here's a couple stories and whatnot. And whatnot. On Monday, January 4th, <laughs> 2016, at 6 o'clock a.m., I was backcountry camping with a friend in the Sam Houston National Forest. We had made camp near an unnamed pond west of the hiking trail. The night was, this sounds perfect, the night was clear, about 35 degrees and perfectly still. My friend and I were hammock camping and because of the cold, we're both under low staked tarps that prevented us from seeing out. Our hammocks were about 15 yards apart. At 6 o'clock a.m., it was still completely dark. I had been awake for about 15 minutes but remained in my sleeping bag inside my hammock. At that point, I heard a sharp clack, perhaps 75 yards on the other side of my friend. Two seconds later, I heard a double knock much farther away, perhaps a half mile to the north or northwest. Wood knocking? Wood or rock rock knocking? Oh, it could be rocks, yeah. The first pop was crisp and close. To my ears, it had to either be rock on rock or wood on wood. As there is nothing in that area but sandy soil and trees, my conclusion was that this was a well-struck tree knock followed by a distant response. To the best of our knowledge, there were no other people in the vicinity. We had arrived at the trailhead to begin our one-night backpacking trip at 2 o'clock p.m. the previous afternoon, and we'd only seen one other party of hikers who passed our camp at 4.30 Sunday afternoon and continued eastward on the trail. We saw no one else during the entire trip, which ended when we arrived back at the parking lot at 11.30 a.m. Monday morning. Had it been windy, I could have written the sounds off to cracking limbs, but there was not even the slightest breeze, and the two sounds appeared to me to be a clear call and response, such as, humans are over here, roger that. After the sounds, I froze and listened hard for several minutes for any other noise such as footfalls, stick breaks, or other evidence of visitors, but heard none. Within five minutes, I asked my friend if he had heard it too, and he had not, having his ears covered by his cap and his head inside his sleeping bag at the time. Within 15 minutes, we were both asleep again. We awoke for good around 7.20 a.m. and vacated the area at 10 a.m. We heard distant coyotes, dogs, ducks, and owls, but no other such sounds during our stay. Considering the stillness of the night, the crisp, unambiguous clack, and the quick double-knock response, I can think of no other cause for these sounds. There's something equally fascinating and unsettling about the idea of something or things communicating like that in the middle of the night when you're in the woods. Yeah. And there's not supposed to be anyone else there. Yeah, like that's a freaky... Like they're communicating with each other. Yeah. And it's probably about you. A big part of me would like, like when we do our summer trip, if we're going to do our summer trip, to like camp. Like I've never spent a night in the woods. Oh, really? No, I have never spent a night in the woods, ever. I've slept in a tent in my friend's backyard when I was a kid, but I have never camp camped. Okay. But part of me wonders what this would be like to be laying... Because you know me, I'll be up at two... To be just laying there and to hear something, you know, like what, how scary that is. I think to get that experience, like campgrounds aren't the way to go then because you're just going to hear other campers. Yeah, I want to be out in the woods. Like, yeah. yeah, there are places like that around here. I forget what it's called where you can, it's like um, public land yeah. and you can go anywhere and camp there. It's not a campground, but you can camp yeah. and that would be where you would want to go, yeah. not a campground. I've only camped in a campground. I've never even done any of that. Hmm. But what's cool about the BFRO site is that they do these reports and then there is a follow-up by by investigators, which is really cool that Mm -hmm. they do this. Yeah. So the follow-up investigation report by BFRO investigator Michael Janakis says, quote, 
I spoke with the witnesses on the afternoon of 6-5-16 about this encounter. While there is no way for sure to tell whether or not the tree knocks were from a Bigfoot, there are other parts to this story that make me believe it was. First, there is a report on another website that describes a Class A encounter on the same day made by an unrelated person about an hour later just a mile or so from this encounter. While I was not involved in the investigation from the other site, it sounds credible. Second, this report was from an area just a mile or so from the site of the BFRO Texas Expedition October 2015. One whole team of participants on that expedition had a Class A sighting very near to where this event occurred. In short, there has been a lot of reported activity in this part of the forest. Lastly, unlike some areas, wood knocks are very common in East Texas forests. Heard and reported all the time, signs point to wood knocks as being a communication tool used by Bigfoots. Perhaps because of the forests of southeast Texas are relatively flat and the wood knock sound travels farther. The witness intends to continue hiking in the same forest and promise to update us on any further investigations. That is true. Texas is very flat. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so this one, this one I think I just have, it's just a report. I don't have the, the, because they go over the whole thing in the report. Here's another investigation report by BFRO investigator Michael Janakis again. The witness had been to the site on many occasions. After hearing several howls, he had joked to his daughter that they were made by Bigfoot. It became a family spot where they'd bring friends and neighbors, oftentimes hearing vocalizations, reports the witness. On the night of this event, the witness had brought his teenage daughter and three of her friends to this spot. Around midnight, he parked his pickup truck on a dirt road right along the tree line where he had had previous activity. The four girls climbed into the back of the pickup, standing up for a better view. Witness then proceeded to give several long... Witness then proceeded to give several long, deep howls, you know, like making the Bigfoot sounds. Shortly thereafter, one of the girls sees something step out from behind a large tree that was approximately 125 feet away. She immediately pointed and screamed, causing the other girls to look. Lit by moonlight, the other three girls saw the same creature. It stood eight and a half feet tall and was very wide. Because it was dark and lit only by the moon, they could not determine the color or any distinguishing features of the creature other than it stood upright, was huge, and was close. As the girls screamed, the witness looked to the spot they were pointing. He could also see something large and dark standing motionless. The girls were panicked and wanted to leave, so the witness quickly drove home. The following day, the witness returned to the site and discovered a large footprint in the exact same place where they'd witnessed the creature step out from behind the tree. There were an additional four to five successive footprints walking away from the area. The witness made a cast of each print. Uh, The cast of the left foot of the creature shows some sort of injury or deformity where three of the toes appear to originate from the same spot, like that of a chicken. Weird. Yeah. The other two toes on the left foot, as well as those on the right foot, appear normal. Witnesses, the witness brought me to the location on the late afternoon of December 2nd, 2012. While the details were gone of the footprints, the impression of each foot was still kind of intact. Of note was the depth of each print. The prints were easily two and a half inches into a hard-packed dirt surface covered by pine needle litter. I was wearing heavy boots and weigh more than the average man, but even jumping up and down, I could not make a depression into the surface any more than a quarter of an inch. The witness is an educated professional with an engineering background. He and his wife are devoted to their church and teach Sunday school each weekend. He and his family are very credible and very articulate. A follow-up. The witness reported increasing vocalization activity in the same area. We decided to do an overnight camp in the same general area. So on January 5th, 2013, I drove my Jeep deep into the woods, some of the terrain requiring four-wheel drive. I was joined by the witness, who I'll refer to as W, and a friend of mine, who I'll refer to as P. 
We were in a very remote area on a very, very cold night. The likelihood of any human being there that night was very low. We gathered wood, set up three camp chairs equally spaced around the fire, and settled in. We were set up by dark and decided we'd stay put all night and see what happened. We'd stay put all night and see what happened. It is important to note that my friend, P, was a complete skeptic. On the way there, he said, quote, Anything we see or hear tonight can easily, easily be explained as a known animal. It was a cloudy and therefore dark night. The only light came from our campfire, but due to the dense woods, we could only see about 20 or 25 feet beyond the campfire. 8.30 p.m., W and I heard what sounded like something large deliberately pushing through the thick branches of a low-hanging pine tree just outside the campfire light from the west. That's creepy. Like, I think, I don't know if I would freak out or... There were definitely limbs snapping. You could hear other limbs swinging back to their natural position. There were no subsequent sounds. 9.30 p.m., loud, distant wood knock. Solid wood on wood sound, perhaps 200 yards away, coming from the southwest direction. 10.15 p.m., large thump sound just outside the campfire light from the southwest direction. Nope. We all heard it, but could not decide if it was a hand slap to a chest sound or a foot thumping into the soft pine needle-covered ground. that's creepy. 10.25 p.m., all of us heard four bounding footsteps moving from the southwest to the west. <laughs> Krista's oh, shaking her so head. so creepy. Yeah, all of us heard four bounding footsteps moving from the southwest to the west direction just beyond the light. The camp- That's what really creeps me out is that it's all just outside of their field of vision where the fire yeah. is reaching. Yeah. That's creepy. It creeps me out thinking more of it being a human than of being a Bigfoot. They're both equally creepy, if you <laughs> ask me. The campfire smoke was slowly shifting direction in the light breeze. It was then that we discovered that whichever of the three of us the smoke was coming towards had the activity happening directly behind them, meaning the creature was intentionally remaining downwind from us uh, as the wind changed direction. Sure. 1 o'clock a.m., a sudden loud cracking sound coming from the west, no more than 25 feet away from us. It was a 10-foot tall tree being pushed over. It was incredibly loud. The entire event lasted five seconds, enough time for P, who had his back to the sound, to jump from his camp chair and leap over the fire. That's the guy that was the skeptic. All while the occurrence was happening, immediately silent once the tree hit the ground. 1.30 a.m., due west, 25 feet away. Something slowly, deliberately stepped onto the fallen tree, making a snapping, crushing sound as it broke the limbs. I can best describe it as rolling your car tire over a pile of tree branches. You could literally hear one to two inch diameter limbs snap and crush at the same time. Too much surface area involved to be a deer or hog hoof. Too much weight to be a big cat or other human. There was no other sound at all. I felt like some creature was very intentionally trying to scare us into leaving the area. This person is very good at judging distance and size just from sound. It's one of their investigators, so... 3.30 a.m. P., the skeptic, was the first to hear it. He whispered, do you hear that? We went totally silent. W. then said, it sounds like two rocks tapping. The sound was coming from the northwest, and having the campfire crackling between me and the sound, I could not hear it. I got up from my chair and went around to the northwest side of the fire. Then I heard it. Something was lightly clacking two rocks together, again, no more than 25 feet from us. It was semi-rhythmic, like Morse code, sometimes sound, sometimes quick, sometimes slow, but with no discernible pattern. It would go on for like 10 to 15 seconds, stop for a minute or two, and then start again. It was definitely rocks. This went on for almost 20 minutes before going quiet. I moved back to my camp chair. Then it started again. Only this time it was louder. It went on for about 15 seconds and then abruptly stopped. 
Almost immediately from the south, directly behind me about 25 feet, more rock clacks started, loud and at a somewhat faster pace. That's creepy. (laughs) After 15 seconds, too, that stopped. It was our first indication that there might have been more than one creature near us. Since it was 4 a.m. and we were tired, W and P were getting spooked, I suggested it was time to put the fire out and go home. We left the fire, or we left the area without any further activity. So there you go. That's a lot of activity. That is a lot of activity. You know, considering the fact that it's a witness, an investigator, and a skeptic, the fact that, you know, like the skeptic was obviously freaked out. Yeah. But he might have thought it was a bear or some kind of animal. Yeah. You know. I, it's so it's so funny because I'm fascinated by hearing this stuff, but yeah. I don't want to. I don't necessarily want to experience it because that would be really scary. To it me. is like I love the idea of Bigfoot, and again, this is like the thing with a doll, where it's like I think I would do that, and then when you're actually there, I'm like, like why Give am me I the doing hell this? Out of here. <laughs> why am I doing <laughs> this? Not fun. <laughs> no, like I can't imagine being in a woods. If I were like, I have be... no. I'm in the woods a lot, like walking through the woods in the daytime, yeah, or even at night. I've walked through the woods doing my bat detector thing, yeah, but uh. Like the idea of being in the woods and hearing something like 25 feet away from you making sounds. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I would do. I would freak out. Yeah. <laughs> so I would I freak think, out too. But I, I don't know if I would run. Would I, would I panic? I'd would high I be, tail out of there. I don't you? know if I'd run, but I would, I would beeline. You'd out have of to go there. at a brisk walk. <laughs> yes. A very brisk walk. Okay. I think if I were with a, a small group of people, it wouldn't be as bad. But if it were just me and like another person or me by myself, that would. Safety in numbers, you yeah. know what I mean? Yep. So, yeah, there are some Bigfoot stories. I know Krista loves Thank them. Thank you. That last one I really like because it yeah. was like such a well-written. Yeah. So now we get to cryptid creature number two, the Houston Batman. From an ABC13.com article, the most notorious reports of a flying humanoid is that of the Houston Batman, professional cryptozoologist Ken Gerhard said. This tale takes us to Houston back in the 1950s when it was a boomtown bursting at the seams. It was 2.30 a.m. on June 18, 1953 in the Houston Heights. Three neighbors claimed that they saw something extraordinary land just a few feet away from their home. Hours later, the unearthly encounter was front-page news in the Houston Chronicle. There's only really one account that I'm aware of, and it's a very chilling encounter Gerhard said subsequently they were so horrified by their experience that they contacted the local police the Houston Chronicle article detailed the encounter saying quote Hilda Walker a 23 year old housewife and two of her neighbors were sitting on their front porch and suddenly Hilda noticed a large shadow moving across the lawn Gerhard said it was then that they finally could make out its form one of the witnesses Howard Phillips a tool plant inspector told the Houston Chronicle quote I could hardly believe it, but I saw it. All three witnesses had a similar description of what they saw that night. Again, who does this sound like? I always think it's interesting when people are scared enough that they call the police. Like something's happening. It appeared to be a very tall man or man-like figure that seemed to jump from the lawn up to a tree limb. It stood about six and a half feet tall, but with bat-like wings attached to his back. Mothman for sure. It also seemed to be encased in a halo of glowing light. They said the mysterious figure lingered for 30 seconds or more on the branch, then suddenly the light began to fade out and the figure vanished, Gerhard said. So, according to an article on MysteriousUniverse.com, it all began one night in June 1953. A young Houston housewife named Hilda Walker was sitting on the porch of her house on East 3rd Street along with her neighbors, Judy Meyer, 14, I don't know why they're hanging out with the 14-year-old neighbor, and Howard Phillips, 33. It was peaceful, although a very hot night. What happened next shocked the trio. 
Walker later described what they witnessed. According to author Nick Redfern, Walker stated, quote, 25 feet away, I saw a huge shadow across the lawn. I thought at first it was the magnified reflection of a big moth caught in a nearby streetlight. Then the shadow seemed to bounce upwards into a pecan tree. We all looked up. That's when we saw it. It was a man-like form which stood six and a half feet tall and sported bat wings on its back. A strange glow surrounded the Batman. The witnesses sat stunned and watched for 30 seconds, then the light began to fade and the figure vanished. Judy Meyer let out an ear-piercing scream. Immediately afterwards, Walker went on, we heard a loud swoosh over the house tops across the street. It was like the white flash of a tornado-shaped object. I've heard so much about flying saucer stories, and I thought all those people telling the stories were crazy, but now I don't know what to believe. I may be nuts, but I saw it. Whatever it was, I sat there stupefied. I was amazed. Phillips added, quote, We looked across the street and saw a flash of light rise from another tree and then take off like a jet. The next morning, Walker made a police report of the terrifying encounter. Also, according to MysteriousUniverse.com, several years after he first heard about the exploits of the Batman, a close friend of Gerhard told him about the experience of a number of employees at Houston's Bel Air Theater who claimed to have seen a gigantic helmeted man crouch down and attempting to hide on the roof of a downtown city building one night in the 1990s. Wearing so, a helmet? Yeah. It so sounds I, like a, what are they called? A base jumper? Yeah, they that does jump sound from like tall a base buildings. jumper. But that's the Houston Batman. But again, that sounds a lot like the NASA gargoyle. Mm-hmm. And it's that sounds a lot like the Mothman. Mothman. So mm-hmm. is this all one creature that people are seeing? Mm-hmm. You know, like I used to not really buy into the Mothman stuff, but with all the sightings going on and like the Chicago sightings. There's got to be something There's going something on. like flying around. Yeah. And, and I think that two of these things sound like the Mothman. Yeah. And I wonder if, I'm sure Tobias is, but I wonder if people are making the connection that these are all the same creature. Mm-hmm. It's very possible. Yeah. But again, that sounds so much like the Mothman. I mean, if you think about there's different um, descriptions of Bigfoot that appear like it's almost different. Yeah. Species. Not yeah. species. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. It's so like a similar. I think it's plausible that there are yeah, different totally. sort of types of Mothman. Totally. And finally, Creature Cryptid number one. I only have this as number one because I could not decide if I wanted to put this in hauntings or cryptids. But okay. I, just, I decided on, on cryptids. It's a good segue into the I decided, stuff. Yeah, I decided on <laughs> Creature, although it's more of an urban legend. Okay. It is the Candy Lady, Clara Crane. January 26, 2022 article on Only in Your State. Uh, most of this comes from a January 26, 2022 article on OnlyInYourState.com and an article on 106.3 TheBuzz.com. The sleepy town of Terrell, 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 T E R R E L L, Terrell. Terrell. The sleepy town of Terrell, Texas was once home to Clara Crane, a woman born in 1871. Her husband was an older gentleman by the name of Leonard Gilbert Crane, and the two had a little girl who they named Marcella. I think that's such a cute name. Mm -hmm. Leonard was a farmer, and tragically, Marcella died in an accident out on the fields when she was only five years old. Mm -hmm. Clara blamed Leonard for her death, even more so after she found out that he had been drinking at the time of the accident. I don't know if he ran her over with the plow, or, but she blamed him for her death, found out he was drunk at the time of the accident. Two years later, still stricken with grief, Clara decided to take revenge. She laced a few caramels, her husband's favorite candy, with poison and gave them to him. Oh my he died as a result of eating the lethal candy. The following day, a neighbor came by to check on Clara after noticing her shaken and frenzied state. 
Clara was taken into custody after becoming aggressive towards County Sheriff Fred Springer, who the neighbor had called. Instead of receiving life in prison, Clara was found insane, possibly in the membrane. I don't know. And she was incarcerated at the North Texas Lunatic Asylum, now known as the Terrell State Hospital. While in the asylum, Clara made a doll out of torn bedsheets. The doll she called Marcy, the same name as her daughter. Clara could be seen talking and singing to the doll by oh the asylum staff. Wow. In a small portion of a letter that Clara supposedly wrote to her sister while in the asylum, she says, quote, Dearest Aggie, I am elated. I have been informed by Dr. Matthews that Marcy and I will be returning home in less than three weeks. As you can imagine, Marcy can barely contain her excitement. Every night she asks, is tomorrow the day we go home, mother? Very soon I will be able to tell her yes. Well, <laughs> so someone has become unhinged. Yeah. She was released in 1899 due to overcrowding, and that's where the urban legend begins. According to local lore, lore, according to local lore, children began to go missing near the old crane property in 1903. Children would sometimes wake up in the morning to find candy wrappers on their windowsills signed by, quote, the candy lady. Wow. It's said that the local sheriff also vanished, and his body was later found in a ditch. Forks had been stabbed into his eyes, and his pockets were stuffed with candy. Oh, my God. Additionally, a town farmer came across rotten teeth in his field, teeth so small that they could have only belonged to children. To rotten this day, teeth? Yeah. Like they had been eating a lot of candy. Yeah. Oh to this God. day, it's believed that the candy lady still roams the area, luring little children with candy, then pulling out their teeth or stabbing them in the eye with forks. There you go. Yeah, I wouldn't call this a cryptid. It's more of a uh, urban, urban legend. legend. Yeah, yeah. That's, the, that's the candy lady, the candy Clara lady. Crane. Okay. So there you go. There are some creep that, not cuddly, definitely not None cuddly. None of those are cuddly. None of those are cuddly. If I had to cuddle with any of them, it, maybe. It would be Bigfoot for me. No, he's probably smelly. Probably. He's definitely smelly. Or he smells like campfire. Oh, if he smelled like that's campfire. That's not bad. No, if he smelled like redwood and campfire. Mm. <laughs> we need to make a Bigfoot scented uh, Old Spice deodorant. So are we ready to segue into our haunted areas? We are. Our haunted slash weird areas? Okay, this one, I don't know. I didn't call it number six. I just called it a bonus, and I'm not sure why, because it technically should be number six. What do you think of when you think of Texas weird stuff? I only know this because of Unsolved Mysteries. I don't know. The Marfa lights. Oh. Just like the Paulding lights. Okay. Ooh, really? This comes from Wikipedia. According to author Judith Brusky, the Marfa lights of West Texas have been called many names over the years, such as ghost lights, weird lights, strange lights, car lights, mystery lights, or Chinati lights. The favorite place from which to view the lights is a widened shoulder on Highway 90 about nine miles east of Marfa. The lights are most often reported as distant spots of brightness, distinguishable from ranch lights and automobile, and automobile headlights on Highway 67. Robert and Judy Wagers, Wagers define classic Marfa lights as being seen southwest of the Marfa Lights Viewing Center. It's cool that they actually have a viewing center mm -hmm. where you go and watch the M MLVC. They define the left margin of the viewing area as being aligned along the big big band telephone company tower as viewed from the MLVC and the right margin as Chinati Peak as viewed from the MLVC. James Bennell states, quote, You might just see mysterious orbs of light suddenly appear above de desert foliage. These balls of light may remain stationary as they pulse on and off with intensity varying from dim to almost blinding brilliance. 
Then again, these ghostly lights may dart across the desert or perform splits and mergers. Light colors are usually yellow-orange, but other hues, including green, blue, and red, are also seen. Marfa mystery lights usually fly above desert vegetation, but below background mesas. The first historical record of the Marfa lights was in 1883 when a young cowhand, Robert Reed Ellison, saw a flickering light while he was driving cattle through Paisano Pass and wondered if it was the campfire of Apache Indians. Other settlers told him that they often saw the lights, but that when they went to investigate, they found no ashes or any evidence of a campsite. Joe and Ann Humphreys next reported seeing the lights in 1885. Both stories appear in Cecilia Thompson's book called, quote, History of Marfa in Presidio County, Texas, which is published in 1985. The first published account of the lights appeared in the July 1957 issue of Coronet Magazine. In 1976, Elton Miles' Tales of the Big Bend included stories dating to the 19th century and a photo taken of the Marfa lights by a local rancher. Bunnell lists 34 Marfa light sightings from 1945 through 2008. Monitoring stations were put in place in 2003. He has identified an average of 9.5 Marfa light sightings on 5.25 nights per year, but believes that the monitoring stations may only be finding half of the Marfa lights in Mitchell Flat. Hmm. So it's very much like the Paulding lights. Uh, students went out to like do studies on it and they believe that it's lights from the nearby highway, kind of like, like we talked about light. with the Paulding yeah. lights, that it's, it's due to like, it's due to like the hot air and the cold air, like mingling at sure. night and reflecting. But then it also doesn't explain why they showed up in, in 1885 or in 1883 when oh. there were no cars, no, no headlights. Right. So that's kind of weird that, you know, people blame it on the Would nearby. Would people have been traveling at night with lanterns, though? Probably. I don't think they had the highway there back then. I don't I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. But it sounds exactly like the Paulding lights. Yeah, definitely. It really does. Mm-hmm. So the Marfa lights, I remember just seeing this on Unsolved Mysteries when mm-hmm. I was a, a wee young Kurt back in the day. Wee little Kurt. Wee little Kurt. But it's it's like the, the mystery light stories are fascinating. Yeah. I would love, like if we go to Paulding, we gotta go to the Paulding I really night. want to see the lights. I don't want to go there on a night that there's no lights because I want to see lights. I will Me have too. you take a flashlight and go run around down there just so I see some <laughs> sort of lights. So number five haunting slash weird area is Goatman's Bridge. A lot of goat men in this episode. Yeah, a lot of of goat people. Denton's most famous specter is a story handed down for generations with few variations, and that's the haunted Goatman's Bridge. Travelers to the old Alton Bridge, built in 1884 as a busy thoroughfare, have long reported frightening encounters and ghostly experiences with supernatural creatures that have made it a legendary spot for Texas ghost hunters and a topic for numerous books. According to the most circulated version, an African-American entrepreneur named Oscar Washburn and his family tended a farmstead goat herd near the bridge that was renowned for, for quality meat, milk, cheeses, and hides. While the popular businessman proudly hung a sign on the old Alton Bridge directing, quote, this way to the goat man, it infuriated local Ku Klux Klansmen who plotted violence. On a night in late 1930s, a lynch mob of Kluxers stormed Washburn's Bridge and dragged the screaming goat man to their noose waiting on the bridge, tightened the rope across the bagging Oscar's neck, then mercil- mercilessly flung him over the side. 
but when they stumbled down to the dark river's edge to confirm their murderous handiwork, they were shocked to find only an inexplicably empty noose dangling over undisturbed waters. The panicked clansmen frantically searched the area unsuccessfully before rushing to Washburn's shanty, setting it afire with the Goatman's family shrieking inside. This sounds a lot like the donkey lady. Mm-hmm. By the way, I love the term cluxers because it makes them sound completely ridiculous. It does. It does. I've never heard that term before. Uh, setting it afire with the Goatman's family shrieking inside, perhaps to bait a desperate rescue attempt by the vanished Oscar. Washburn was never seen again, they say, but a vengeful spirit has haunted the old Alton Bridge ever since. There's more than one version that attempts an explanation for the century of frights and sights encountered at the bridge. Some attribute the work of Satanists who opened a portal for a hellspawn demon, while others say that the Goatman's wife is eternally searching for her murdered children. Maybe the Goatman and the Donkey Lady should hook up. <laughs> I don't know. There's also another variation. Everyone deserves love. They, they do. There's also another variation that predates the bridge itself. In an account that goes back as far as the 1860s, some Copper Canyon cowboys lynched a Creole slave goat herder named Jack Kendall from a tall creekside tree near where the bridge now stands, but in eptitude separated the runaway slave's head from his body. The slavers then watched in horror as the headless body rose up from the creek bed mud animated by voodoo and ripped the head off a nearby goat to replace his own, which was still dangling in the noose. <laughs> You're not buying that? Nah. Local legend says that if you knock on the steel bridge three times at midnight, or perhaps turn your car lights off and honk three times in summons, then you dare a visitation from the vengeful goat man that's preceded by the stench of decaying flesh. Oh, this is the stuff of urban legends yeah. right there. Numerous reports tell of unholy glowing eyes that burn red from the darkness, eerie glimpses of a large snarling goat-headed man-beast stomping in the wooded shadows, or a frightening apparition of a maniacal satyr carrying the heads of goats or humans in his hands. It's said that the Goatman only spirits away those with the bloodline of clansmen or slave owners into the woods for their terrible revenge. The terrifying encounters and reported vanishings have been so frequent as to warrant numerous investigations of the area by paranormal groups. Hmm. That is Goatman's Bridge. Okay. So every every episode has to have a bridge, apparently. Of course. Like bridges. Where you have to do something three times. Or... Bridges are just symbolic of, yeah. you know, the passageway between life and death. But there's, there's we got to do it. I, like, to the point now where I feel like I have to find a bridge with some urban legend. It's not hard. No, it's not hard. <laughs> Goatman's Bridge. Number four. I thought uh, the Animal Industries Building at Texas A&M. Hmm. Mm-hmm. From an October 20th, 2013 article on goodbullhunting.com called, quote, An Aggie Ghost Story, the article says, On Saturday, November 14th, 1959, meat locker room foreman Ray Lee Sims was going about his daily routine of preparing meat in the animal laboratory located in the basement of the Animal Industries Building, or ANIN. At 8.10 a.m., Sims was cutting a slab of bacon by hand as his assistant, Zelly Newton, stepped outside to check the weather report on his car radio. Cutting towards himself, Sims' knife slipped and sliced across his left leg near the groin, severing his femoral artery. Oh, God. That's not good. It's claimed that in his desperation, Sims crawled towards the freight elevator to lift himself to safety, dying inside before escaping. Newton attempted to call for an ambulance, but Roy Sims was declared dead by 8.15 a.m. before medical assistance could arrive. From there, the ghost stories began. 
Custodians and students have grown the myth over the years as they stay late in the ANIN witnessing unexplainable things. It is regularly reported that screaming voices can be heard in the hallways, footsteps and slamming doors where no one is seen, even strange objects moving along the wall near the freight elevator where Sims bled out. Some janitors have requested reassignment out of fear, and others have embraced the spirit of Roy Sims. Dr. Gary Smith was approached by custodian Henry Turner for leaving the elevator at the top floor. At Henry's request, Smith agreed to leave the elevator open in the basement so that the ghost of Sims could sleep there at night. If he did not have a place to sleep, the ghost would go rummaging around the meat lab disturbing equipment and tools. Hmm. It is still commonplace to this day for the cleaning crew to leave Sims' elevator open in the basement. If you're feeling brave, the room of the tragic accident is now a men's restroom, as described in the battalion in 2011, that says, quote, Located on the basement level is the men's restroom, which serves as an entrance to the building's fire escape. It is aligned with rusty steel hooks that were used to hang cattle by their front hooves before, by their front hooves before slaughtering. Oh. A drain sits in the middle of the whitewashed brick floor, an access point for blood to stream into. Sounds like a lovely area. No. But that is the engineering, the Animal Industries Engineering Building at Texas A&M. These, a lot of these, I didn't, I went to a lot of sites that talked about haunted areas and I just picked the ones that I kept seeing show up over and over. Number three, and this one kind of surprised me because I never, I like, I don't know the history of this place. It's a huge thing but i don't know the history of the place and i don't remember ever hearing it was haunted but number three is the alamo oh yeah okay i might do a side sessions all about the alamo because i don't know anything that happened there you know i know I feel it's like famous a, i know I, re- I know that you're supposed to remember the alamo but that's <laughs> yeah, all i know I don't. that's all i know huh. uh so i want to do a side sessions about yeah. it because i would like to learn more about the alamo but mm-hmm. i think this is one of those things that texans all know yeah. the story of but sure. wisconsinites mm, not, not so much. much no we can tell you all about quick trip and culvers <laughs> but about the alamo no so from an article called the ghosts of the alamo on the ghostcitytours.com website it says Long before the Battle of the Alamo occurred in 1836, the site on which the Alamo and the plaza sit was once a cemetery for the city of San Antonio. Between the years 1724 and 1793, it's estimated that nearly a thousand people were buried on this land. Then the battle transpired and the number of dead whose blood ran into the soil increased by tenfold. It is said that often construction workers doing work in the Alamo plaza pull up skulls and bones. It was not long after the battle had ended that the first sightings of specters at the Alamo began to surface. Mere days had passed since the end of the bloodshed when General Santa Ana mandated that the historic church be burned down to the ground. The thought that the Texans might see the mission as a shrine to those who had rebelled against him made Santa Ana furious. So angry, actually, that he ordered his field commander, General Adrande, to bring a group of cavalrymen out to the site and see that the whole place was set on fire. Doing as he was told, Andrande agreed and sent his men. When they arrived at the Alamo, however, they were quick to turn back around and return to the Mexican army camp. Andrade demanded to know why they had not completed their task. Shaken and white-faced, one of his men stepped back. He regaled Andrade, I never know how to pronounce that, 
of the six Diablos who had stood before them at the Alamo. Each spirit had held a flaming sword, encircling the group of soldiers as they blocked the entrance to the mission. They feared destroying the church and what might happen to them if they did. Rumors circulated that the entities protecting the Alamo were those men who died during the battle, while others claimed that the vigilant specters must have been the old Franciscan monks guarding their mission. Hmm. But the general only scoffed at the tales of warrior ghosts and the terrified expressions on his men's faces. He'd go there himself then. He enlisted a few men and set off towards the Alamo, Santa Ana's orders to burn the place down ringing loudly in his ears. When he arrived, he directed his troops to the Longhouse Barracks. Only this time, instead of the sword-wielding ghosts at the front gates, the general spotted a tall male spirit rise up on the roof of the barracks. Clasped, clasped in each hand was a ball of fire. The specter held out the flaming weapons and the Mexican soldiers dropped to their knees. The heels of their palms dug into their eyes to block out the sight, but it was no good. They feared for their lives. The general left the mission well enough alone, hightailing it out of San Antonio with his troops as fast as they could march. Neither they nor General Santa Ana ever returned to the Alamo, and the mission would fall into ruin within the next 10 years. By 1846, Texas had been annexed into the United States, and the old Alamo was then converted into a complex for the U.S. Army. But in 1871, the decision came to demolish part of the old church, leaving only the old barracks. The dismantlement never came. When the newspapers voiced the deconstruction of the historic Mission San Antonio, sightings of ghosts wandering the grounds of the church began to, report, began to be reported, almost all of them coming from the guests staying at the Menger Hotel just across the plaza. The Menger Hotel, or Menger, Menger, is also rumored to be haunted. Those staying at the hotel swore that they'd seen the spirits of a long-ago army marching up and down the path in front of the Alamo, some of the apparitions disappearing into the walls of the building, and others standing guard all night as if protecting the site from anything or anyone who might seek to tear it down. Between 1894 and 1897, the local newspaper, the San Antonio Express News, published a series of articles which highlighted the almost freakish paranormal phenomenon occurring at the Alamo. The reports described the ghostly guards who marched up along the roof of the police station, the dark figures roaming the corridors at night, and the distinct sounds of moaning that awoke the staff and prisoners from their slumber. Soon the activity was so vibrant, so alive in its frequency, that guards started to refuse being on night patrol at the site. The policemen were furious, but no one would take those shifts in fear of running across one of the many ghosts of the Alamo still haunting the grounds, and the prison was forced to move not that long after. One of the most commonly spotted ghosts at the old mission is that of a blonde-haired boy. He's seen most often in the upstairs left window, which now is part of the Alamo's gift shop. As the story goes, it's believed that the little boy was evacuated during the siege of the Alamo. Though he survived, it's thought that perhaps his parents did not, and his spirit returns over and over again to the site where he last saw them. During the month of February, his little ghost is seen most frequently. That's sad. Poor little guy. Along the outer walls of the Alamo, the ghostly figure of what is believed to be a Mexican soldier has been seen by tourists and locals alike. Meandering the grounds, his hands are always clasped behind his back, his chin tilted down, he shakes his head somberly. Although it can't be proven one way or another, this ghostly soldier is believed to be General Manuel Fernandez de Castrillon, Castrillo, one of Santa Ana's commanders who refused to lay siege to the Alamo. After the last of the firefight on the eve of the battle came to an end, six men were brought to Castrillon, Castrillo to surrender. 
The general offered the men as protection, but Santa Anna refused this act of truce and ordered the Texans' executions. Infuriated when Castrillo, Castrillo, I hate, I hate not being able to pronounce his name. Infuriated when he refused to follow orders, Santa Anna murdered the men himself, hacking them to death with sharp-bladed sabers, and almost killed Castrillon himself. Various reports have surfaced over the years of seeing the apparitions of a man and child up on the roof of the Alamo. The spirits are always seen just after sunrise, but then the image distills, jerks, as the ghostly man wraps his arm around the child and leaps off the roof to the ground below. It would seem that these ghostly figures are a case of residual energy. For during the last moments of the Battle of the Alamo, General Adrande and other Mexican soldiers glanced up and were horrified to see a tall, thin man with a small child in his arms leap to the ground from the roof at the rear of the Alamo church. A ghostly guard is still spotted on the south side of the roof, especially on nights when it is rainy or cold. It sounds like super haunted. Like, I, yeah. I never came across it being haunted, but there's a lot of stuff about it. Well, it sounds like a lot of people lost their lives. Yeah, like that's a place of a lot of energy, yeah. obviously. Visitors of the Alamo, which became a museum in 1905, has ex- have expressed feeling very melancholy while wandering through the main chapel area of the mission complex. Some have even felt so depressed that tears leap to their eyes and they are powerless to control their emotions. Others have reported hearing disembodied voices, whispers, as though the spirits are still experiencing the worry of the impending battle and phantom footsteps. From the militaryghost.com website, an article says, Several articles printed in the San Antonio Express News in February 1894 and August 1897 confirmed that paranormal activity was in fact taking place on a regular basis at the Alamo. The articles detailed tales of a ghostly sentry said to walk from east to west on the roof of the police station. The ghostly manifestations, which include mysterious shadows and moaning sounds, were said to be so prominent that the guards and watchmen refused to patrol the building after hours. This caused quite a stir at City Hall. Many of the councilmen felt that making prisoners sleep with ghosts was cruel and unusual punishment. I think I think it's good punishment. Yeah. You're in jail. Here, be in a haunted area. <laughs> a short time later, the city of San Antonio abandoned its plans for the Alamo in favor of a jail site that was less haunted. The paranormal incidents reported in 1894 and 1897 seem to replay themselves over and over even today. Several recurring stories tell of a phantom sentry that has been observed walking frantically back and forth across the top of the Alamo. Some witnesses believe that the ghostly guard is looking for a means of escape, while others are certain that the specter stands watch over a missing treasure that is supposedly in the Alamo. In addition to the presence of the ghostly sentry, tourists, park rangers, and passerby have reported seeing a myriad of grotesque man-shaped forms emanating from the walls of the Alamo itself after hours. That's creepy. Yeah. Sometimes this paranormal menagerie is accompanied by disembodied screams and yelling of men trapped in the throes of some invisible conflict. I love that paranormal menagerie. Yeah. That's what we should call our podcast. <laughs> should, we, should we just retitle it? Yeah. Members of numerous we'll tour brand season seven. <laughs> yep. Memories of numerous tour groups, ghost hunters and psychics who have visited the site claim that they have felt invisible eyes watching them as they travel down the dark hallways of the Alamo. Ordinary people insist that they have heard voices and whispers that seem to filter through the very walls of the mission as if they were attempting to communicate with the world of the living. Others tell lesser stories about their encounters with vanishing lights, eerie cold spots, and a multitude of unexplained noises. In one instance, a park ranger at the Alamo encountered the ghost of a man dressed in attire from the 1830s. It was a really hot day in late spring when the ranger first viewed the suspicious man on the fort grounds walking towards the library. 
As the ranger hurried after the man, he observed that he was wearing tall boots, a plantation hat, and long overcoat. To the ranger's surprise, the puzzling man faded away into obscurity when he neared the chapel. When the ranger investigated further, he could not find any evidence of the stranger's passing. Others have alleged to see the same apparition numerous times in the courtyard of the Alamo, both during the day and at night. Generally, the most often repeated ghost story of the Alamo defies all logic. It focuses on the spirit of a little boy who is rumored to haunt the park's gift shop. Both visitors and park rangers alike claim to have seen a blonde-haired boy, ranging in age from 10 to 12 years of age, staring out into the courtyard from one of the store's high, inaccessible windows. The small boy is only visible from the waist up and has never become a full-bodied apparition. Rangers who have searched the gift shop in hopes of catching the ghostly prankster have come up empty-handed. In each instance, they have concluded that there is no way that a real person could perch him or herself in the window without something to climb up on or some way to support themselves. This mystery gets only more convoluted when you consider the fact that the gift shop was not built until the 1930s. Legends say that during the last days of the siege of the Alamo, a small boy was evacuated from the mission. It's believed that this little child returns to the same spot where he last recalls seeing his parents. The ghostly child may appear to be looking out of the window at curious onlookers when in fact his eyes, his eyes are only searching for a comforting glimpse of a father, brother, or another family member. One of the most interesting ghost stories encountered at the Alamo is that of the Duke himself, John Wayne. As the director and leading actor in a bigger-than-life spectacle, the movie The Alamo, Wayne spent over $1.5 million recreating an exact replica of the old mission in Brackettville, Texas. In an effort to make the movie as historically accurate as possible, Wayne personally toured the original Alamo site several times and consulted actual blueprints of the fortress. While filming the movie, Wayne became obsessed with a sequence of events that led to the fall of the Alamo. This preoccupation with historical accuracy drove the Duke to spend a fortune bringing the Alamo to life on the silver screen. The Alamo set was so detailed that it became a tourist attraction in its own right. Shortly after his death, the Duke's ghost was observed at the real Alamo walking the grounds. He has also been observed visiting and talking with the spirits of the fort's patriotic dead. The story was so telling that a psychic was enlisted to confirm the rumors that John Wayne's spirit visited the Alamo on a regular basis. The psychic substantiated the fact that the Duke's ghost stops over at the Alamo about once a month but could not shed any light on where he manifests himself the rest of the time. Many believe that John Wayne put so much energy and enthusiasm into the making of the movie that it seems only natural that he left a little bit of himself there when he passed into the afterlife. We could not in good faith delve into the various hauntings that are known to take place at the Alamo without discussing the most prominent ghost to make his presence known at the mission throughout the years. At various times throughout the year, park rangers has, have observed a transparent figure dressed in buckskin clothing and sporting a flintlock rifle standing guard near the chapel. This is believed to be the spirit of none other than Davy Crockett himself. Other people who have seen the phantom vigilantly, vigilantly, vigilantly standing at attention at various locations around the Alamo describe the phantom soldier as wearing a coonskin cap, buckskin shirt, and moccasins. In several instances, the figment has been observed by several different people from several, from several different angles at the same time. These observations in themselves prove that the ghost, most generally believed to be Davy Crockett, is not just an optical illusion. Could Davy Crockett's heroic death at the Alamo be forever immortalized in a haunted vignette? One of the grisliest phantom images to play itself out at the old mission occurs in the Long Barracks. It has all the characteristics of a residual-type haunting, but is very similar to the fictional way Davy Crockett was said to have perished. 
one night, a ranger entered the barracks and observed a hideous scene. There, leaning against the wall, was a man wearing buckskin clothing typically worn by frontiersmen during the 1800s. To the ranger's trained eye, it appeared that man's torso was riddled with bullet holes. Before the ranger could react, the spirits of several Mexican soldiers stepped out of the darkness and encircled the stranger with their bayonets at a ready. Like a coiled spring, the ghostly soldiers would pounce, thrusting their long blades through the body of the anguished buckskin-clad specter. In an instant, the encounter played itself out, and the ethereal apparitions just faded away, leaving one emotionally drained ranger in their wake. So yeah, the Alamo... It's pretty active. Yeah, it's Alamo sounds like it's be a super list. active. Yeah, that should totally be a bucket list. And I see here, I misnumbered. <laughs> so I have going, I have a, it goes down to one and then I have a zero. And I was going to re my countdown. Oh, maybe your bonus is what screwed you up. The bonus screwed me up. So we're going <laughs> to call this next one again, number three. <laughs> 3.1. 3.1. Yeah, 3.3.1. I'd like to visit the Alamo, actually. Yeah, it sounds really active. So a number, another number, 3.1, is the Yorktown Memorial Hospital. From the TexasHighways.com site, from the outside, Yorktown Memorial Hospital looks like the definition of haunted. It's a 30,000-square-foot building with a granite and concrete facade and overgrown bushes around its side. Broken windows lead into a black interior. The door is chained shut. Inside the building, a cool breeze wafts down the dark hallway, leaves press against dusty windows, and wasps crawl along the walls. It sounds just lovely. Yeah. Originally, originally built in the 1950s and managed by the Felician Sisters of the Roman Catholic Church. Like, Manitowoc has a lot of Felician stuff. Like, oh, Felician really? Village... The, like the the senior center, the senior home is run by the Felicians. Oh, okay. So I kind of looked into the Felicians a little bit. It was actually kind of interesting. Originally built in the 1950s and managed by the Felician Sisters of the Roman Catholic Church, the sprawling facility contains two main floors, a basement, two wings, a chapel, and an observation tower. The hotel closed in 1986, says current caretaker Stephanie Mayfield, after a new facility opened nearby. From then on, the building operated as a drug rehab facility, but the state closed it in 1992. The building sat empty, attracting stories of terrible malpractice and lurid misbehavior. Rumor has it that hundreds of patients died there, if not thousands, Mayfield says. Naturally, it also acquired a lasting reputation for ghosts. There are stories of patients killed by neglect or surgical mistake, and the ghost of the surgeon who is often held responsible. I always think of... Uh, House on Haunted Hill oh. with the, the doctor, the mm -hmm. ghost, the one that walks all jerky. The herky-jerky yeah, walk. Yeah, the herky-jerky walk. A fearsome black specter with red eyes has been reported to haunt the chapel and growl when Bible verses are read out loud there. Mayfield says that, that she... demonic. Yeah. Mayfield says that she once saw the ghost of a young man staring out from behind the locked front doors, a bullet wound in his head. The spirits of the nuns residing on the second floor are said to push and scratch at men who have tattoos. So they don't like tattoos, apparently. Hmm. Mayfield has experienced feelings of oppressive weight and cold spots, unseen things touching her during tours. Just walking through the building makes her jittery, and she mentions hearing footsteps and faint moaning sounds. A lot of awful things went on here, she says. This place freaks me out. The vibe's not good. Once you shut those doors and get in here, you forget that there's even anything beyond the hospital. The hospital is on private property and has been a popular spot for ghost tours since the building was acquired in part by Joanne Marks Rivera, owner of Victoria's Black Swan Inn, which is also haunted. 
Rivera hired Mayfield to look after the building after the departure of the earlier caretaker. The hospital offers daily walking tours for $25, photography shoots for $100 an hour, and overnight investigations for $500. Dang. That's a lot of money. Wow. It's a lot of money for an overnight investigation. Yes, it is. We could use some of our money, our PayPal sure. money. <laughs> From the website hauntedplacestogo.com, it says... The caretaker has reported on the apparent hauntings of this hospital. The caretaker is named Mike Hansen, so I don't know if this is a different caretaker. I don't know if this one was before the one that we just talked about. Okay. He quoted to reporters at one point, I know for a fact there are a lot of ghosts here. While explaining the experiences that he had had in the structure, he mentions the fact that he has seen a large number of weird black objects. When describing these objects, he compares them to an adult German shepherd. Mm. He also expressed the fact that he observed a full-body apparition that was a male standing in front of the section of the hospital known as the chapel. In addition to observing these things, one of the most frightening recollections uh, one of the most frightening recollections that he has is personally observing red glowing eyes on more than one occasion. That would be creepy. As the caretaker continued to speak of his experiences in the Yorktown Memorial, he described the events that occurred near the nurse's station. If the lights are on in this area, everything seems to be calm and seems he seems to be alone. However, if he turns the lights off, he has observed what looks like many individuals walking around. That's creepy. There are many that appear to be normal and could possibly be described as guests. However, there are many that look as if they are patients that belong in a hospital. Additionally, a staircase is kept closed off in front of the building by a door with a pane of glass. Each evening, it is said that it sounds like there is tapping on this glass pane. A well-known paranormal team by the name of Central Texas Ghost Hunters went in to research the haunted hospital. The team is headed up by a woman that worked as a freelance writer and performed as a stay-at-home mom. Her name is Brandy Runyon. Performed as a stay-at-home mom? That's what it said. Okay. Her name is Brandy Runyon. This ghost hunting team is made up of professionals that work to create actual case files on apparent haunted places in Texas. Unlike other ghost hunters that simply engage in this in hopes of experiencing the paranormal firsthand, this team is professionally and scientifically established. When this team went in to research the building, they took along audio recording equipment. Amazingly, they were able to capture the sound of organ music while investigating the area of the haunted hospital that is known as the chapel. It's also said that if you are in the building overnight, you can sometimes hear dolls talking from the old children's ward. No. 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 Lost, lost Krista no. at talking dolls. So yeah, that is the Yorktown Memorial Hospital. All right. I think any place like that has to be haunted because of all the stuff that went on there. Mm-hmm. Just the energy that's probably still lingering. Yeah. And you know what? I think I am going to switch number one and number two just because I really like this one. So I'm going to switch and we're going to go to number two is going to be the Driscoll Hotel. I swear, I think Stephanie that lives in Texas... Somebody wanted asked me way back when we started this podcast about haunted places in Austin because they were visiting there. Oh. Or she lives there. Okay. And uh, I remember looking up the Driscoll Hotel, and I think she went in because there's a painting here that's supposedly haunted. Oh. The and name I, sounds I, familiar. Yeah, like I think she went in, and I, I don't remember if she, like, if she couldn't get in because they were, they were renovating. Hmm. But there's a, a haunted painting, and I don't remember if she sent me a picture. Like, I have this weird memory of having somebody go there. Okay. So I don't know who, but it is a Driscoll Hotel. This comes from Wikipedia. Jesse Driscoll, a successful cattle baron, had moved from Texas to Missouri in 1849. Flush with cash from his service to the Confederate Army, to which he supplied beef throughout the Civil War, 
he decided to diversify by constructing a grand hotel in Austin. In 1884, Driscoll purchased land at the corner of Six and Brazos for $7,500 and announced his plans for the hotel. The hotel held a grand opening on December 20th, 1886. On January 1st, 1887, Governor Saul Ross held, held his inaugural ball at the ballroom, beginning a tradition for every Texas governor since. I forget that Austin is the capital of Texas. I always feel like I think it's Dallas mm, or sure. San Antonio or something, but it's Austin. The hotel opened with 60 rooms, including 12 corner rooms with attached baths, a rare feature in hotels of the region at the time. At the center of the hotel was a four-story open rotunda capped by a domed skylight, which functioned as a flue to suck up the hot air and to cool the building. The skylight was removed when air conditioning was installed on the roof in 1950. The building was designed with separate entrances for men and women. Two entrances, one on 6th Street and another facing the alleyway on the west side of the building, were reserved for men and were flanked by a saloon, billiard room, cigar shop, a newsstand, and a barber shop. The women's entrance on Brazos Street allowed female guests to proceed directly to their rooms, thereby avoiding the cigar smoke and rough talk of the cattlemen in the lobby. Hmm. In May, 1887... Rough cattleman talk. There's nothing worse than rough (laughs) cattleman talk. In 1887, less than a year after it opened, the Driscoll was forced to close as he could no longer afford to operate the hotel following a harsh winter and a drought that killed his cattle inventory. In addition... S.E. McKenney, the hotel's general manager, and half of the staff were hired by the, beach ho- by the Beach Hotel in Galveston, Texas, which expedited the closure. Driscoll sold the hotel in 1888 to his brother-in-law, Jim Doc Day, who reopened the hotel in January of 1888. Austin magnate George Littlefield, responsible for other Austin landmarks such as the Littlefield House, opened the Austin National Bank on the southeast corner of the building. The old bank vault still remains. Littlefield later purchased the hotel for $106,000 in 1895 and vowed that it would never close again. Since then, it's passed through a whole bunch of different owners. In 2013, the Driscoll was purchased by Hyatt Hotels Corporation for $85 million, who embarked on an $8 million renovation of the hotel. Hyatt sold the hotel to Dallas-based Woodbine Development in May 2022 for $125 million. In addition to its beautiful architecture and rich history, the Driscoll continues to draw attention due to its host of tragedies and rumors of its paranormal activity. From the Austin Ghost Ghost blog, it says, The Driscoll has what could only be described as a karmic whammy on itself. It was paid, furnished, and marketed with coin chiseled into Jesse Driscoll's pockets on the backs of dead soldiers, human misery, and slaughtered cows. Wow. The whole assembly line from start to finish was drenched in blood and vile. That's how the Driscoll Hotel became one of the most haunted hotels in the United States. Now let's talk about the ghosts and goblins of the place. They have goblins? No, I think they just—I oh. think that's just a saying. Darn. The place has become. <laughs> Krista wants goblins. I'll have to see what I can dredge up about goblins. You don't hear a lot about goblins. The place has become synonym- synonymous. The place <laughs> has become synonymous with hauntings. The Driscoll is so full of ghosts that it even has a Spotify playlist devoted to the subject. I kid you not. If you Google the term ghosts and Driscoll, you'll be rewarded with so much nightmare fuel that your therapist will need to medicate you just so you can once more have a good night's sleep. Jesse Driscoll is said to haunt the hotel. Shortly after the hotel opened up, Jesse came under the pressures of financial hardship. That's code for he blew his earnings on booze, women, and gambling. 
Jesse had no choice but to forfeit the ownership of the Driscoll almost immediately after it opened up. A game of cards did the cowboy in. Jesse lost the deed to the hotel at the poker table. By that point, he was a mess and up to his eyeballs in debt. Monica Ballard, author of, quote, True Haunted Tales of the Driscoll Hotel, says, One of my favorite stories is one of the few sightings we've had of Colonel Jesse Driscoll. One of his favorite rooms in the hotel overlooked 6th Street and Brazos, and there was a consultant in town who woke up one night to see a gentleman standing in his room looking up out the window at 3 o'clock in the morning, puffing on a cigar. The man sat up in bed and said, Hey, fella, what the hell are you doing in my room? He said, the <laughs> hey, guy, fella. <laughs> hey, fella. Yeah. <laughs> if I wake up and there's somebody standing in my bedroom, hey, I don't fella. think it's going to get a hey, fella. <laughs> no. He said the guy looked at him and gave him this look like your room, but he didn't say anything. The consultant leaned over and snapped on the light by the bed, and when the light came on, there was no one standing by the window, but the curtains were still swaying, and there was still a cloud of cigar smoke in Ugh. the air. Nope. From an... An article on AustinMonthly.com called Driscoll Hotel's Haunted History Fact versus Fiction, the article says, The Driscoll has been smoke-free for more than a decade, but that hasn't deterred pockets of cigar smoke from being detected by unsuspecting guests. Some blame the hotel's founder, Colonel Jesse Driscoll, who was known to frequently partake of a good stogie. Regardless, one cigar-wielding male ghost dressed in 19th-century cowboy clothing has appeared before many a female musician. Annie Lennox singer the Eurythmics, claimed that the ghost selected her stage outfit while she showered, <laughs> and Jeanette Napol- Napolitino of Concrete Blonde wrote the song, quote, Ghost of a Texas Ladies' Man, after a night of enduring the ghost's shenanigans. Wow. He's also been known to touch women on the armor back, proving himself more worthy of a historical romance than a gothic novel. <laughs> Another article from AustinMonthly.com, or the same article called Driscoll's Hotel Haunted History Fact versus Fiction, says, Like Stephen King's infamous Room 217 in The Shining, changed to 237 in the Kubrick film, the Driscoll has its own haunted suite where tragedy keeps repeating itself. Little is known of the first dead bride, a sort of ghost peppered in for flavor. The only thing confirmed is that she killed herself in room 525 after her fiancé called off their wedding, and she mournfully walks the halls in her ghostly Victorian gown. The second bride is the more famous one, in part because she is a rare Gen X ghost who died in 1991, yet she still fits the trope of a young and beautiful woman who meets a terrible end. A Houston socialite who escaped to the hotel after being jilted at the altar, she went on a massive shopping spree with her lover's stolen credit card and was last seen several bags into room was last seen carrying several bags into room 525. Later that night, while sitting in the bathtub, the bride put a gun in one hand and a pillow in the other, then shot herself. Since then, the Driscoll guests have claimed to see her carrying packages or a pistol down the hall before she vanishes into room 525 without ever opening the door. Hmm. And for all those history buffs, perhaps perhaps the most famous ghost duet to haunt the hotel is the power couple of Lady Bird and Lyndon Johnson. The pair had their first hookup slash date in 1934 in the Driscoll's dining room. For years, they flocked to the place to not only relive their glory days, but for special occasions. The Driscoll became Lyndon Johnson's favorite place when he visited Austin, so much that when he watched the results of the 1964 presidential elections from the presidential suite... Uh, after which he he addressed his supporters in the ballroom and moved his tail feather in rather an insane victory dance to the cheers of his lackeys. The Driscoll was, and is quite possibly, LBJ's favorite place in Austin. 
To this day, people recount tales of stumbling into the ballroom and catching the reflection of the late president and his adoring wife on the mirrors of the walls out of the corner of their eyes. Mm. That's creepy. That makes me think of that Stephen King story with uh, uh, from his short story book, the one that we just read for the book club, uh, Willa. Where, where the guy and the girl's ghost like stays in the, oh, bar, in the bar and people sometimes see mm-hmm. their reflection in the mirrors of the bar. Yeah. Another one from ghostcitytours.com says, in the early 20th century, Peter Lawless worked as a ticket agent for the Great Northern Railroad. When his wife passed away, he decided just to move into the Driscoll. He set up shop on the fifth floor of the hotel and lived there for a total of 31 years. Impressive, right? Paranormal enthusiasts claim that he never left. Visitors most often witness Lawless exiting the elevator while glancing at the time. With a single nod to the staff at the front desk, his full-body apparition, full apparition just disappears from sight. Employees even claim to see his spirit while they do housekeeping. They report tingling sensations before looking up to find an older gentleman watching them. They say he has black hair and wears dark pants, a white shirt, has a pocket watch. Then they witness Peter Lawless vanish right before their eyes. Curiously, paranormal enthusiasts sometimes claim to watch Peter Lawless leave the Driscoll before stepping in front of a bus. Perhaps he's attempting to escape his restless afterlife. Guests of the Driscoll frequently report a young female poltergeist darting along the grand staircase of the mezzanine. According to local lore, this female apparition apparition is a senator's daughter. It all began in 1887 when the Driscoll was hosting a special function for that year's legislative session. Since the Texas state capitol was still under construction, the Senate opted to hold their session at the Driscoll instead. During the event, the senator handed his daughter a ball to distract her while he handled business. With her ball in hand, the sweet girl skipped over to the staircase. She was bouncing the ball up and down when it went sailing out of her grasp. She tried to grab it, but only succeeded in tumbling down the steps herself. Some believe that the girl died from a broken neck at the base of the stairs. While her spirit is seen throughout the hotel, she's most often spotted near a fifth-floor portrait of a young girl holding flowers. This young girl goes by the name of Samantha, leading paranormal enthusiasts to believe that she's the hotel's young poltergeist. While there's no evidence to tie the little girl to the picture, paranormal disturbances repeatedly occur near the painting. The friendly spirit is known to play with children in their rooms or halls. When parents sometimes ask their children who the imaginary person is they're playing with, their response is almost always the same, Samantha. So that's kind of weird. Yeah. A long-standing folk story surrounding the Driscoll is that of a painting found on the fifth floor of the hotel. The artwork is unnamed, but it's based on a painting by Charles Garland called Love Letter, and it's an unnerving piece brought to life by Richard King. It depicts a little girl holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a letter in the other. Ghost hunters claim that the painting depicts the four-year-old daughter of U.S. Senator Trample Houston, or Temple Houston, who died in... (laughs) Yeah, Temple Houston, not Trample. Temple Houston, who died in a horrible accident at the hotel. The painting is said to be haunted, and people who stroll by the painting constantly feel the presence of something sinister riding their coattails until they vacate the cursed building. Hmm. I'll have a picture. Well, I think the picture of the painting is one of the teaser pictures. Okay. But a lot of people say that that painting is haunted, and that's where I sent somebody. Stephanie, if it was you, do you remember that? Like, I sent someone to this hotel to take pictures of it, hmm. and I don't remember. It's just I don't remember who it was. But the painting is supposedly really haunted, but the Driscoll Hotel is like one of the more haunted places in Texas. 
And finally, that gets us to number one haunted place. These aren't ranked in any order. Okay. It's just whatever I felt like putting them in. Mm-hmm. So number one on this list is the El Paso High School. From the hauntedrooms.com website, open for students in 1916, El Paso High School has always been an undeniably beautiful, if imposing, campus. Nicknamed the Lady on the Hill for her position on a mountainside overlooking the city, El Paso High School bears a stunning silhouette that has made it a city landmark from day one. Unique from its inception for its Greco-Roman-inspired architecture, El Paso High School has always carried a distinct elegance that has set it apart from any other structure in the city. Marble floors add distinction to the halls, and fine hardwoods do the same for the classrooms. Also of note is Jones Stadium, seating 12,000 people and bearing the distinction of being one of the first concrete stadiums in the U.S. Of course, with such a long-storied history of excellence and a campus this unique and imposing, there are bound to be a few dark tales here and there, but the sheer breadth and oddity is what makes El Paso's history with the paranormal truly unique. Though encounters with the paranormal and the odd go almost as far back as the school itself, one particular part of its history that cannot be ignored was its time working as an overflow morgue during the World Wars. The school's immense immense and labyrinth basement temporarily held bodies that were shipped into El Paso in the wake of the Spanish flu outbreak and combat deaths from World War II until the next of kin could be informed. So it's weird to think of a high school also doubling as a morgue where dead bodies from the Spanish flu and World War, the World Wars were kept there. So that's kind of creepy. And this is weird. Like, I don't get this. From the Seek Ghosts blog, according to Tobias Tover, a math teacher at the school, in the winter of 2000, a group of teachers and students were trapped in the school during a snowstorm. This in group, Texas? Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay. But if you get a snowstorm in snow Texas, and if you get a snowstorm in Texas, everything. Yeah, yeah, if you get a snowstorm in Texas, uh, you don't know what to do because right. they're not used to having snowstorms. Yeah, that's true. So I guess I could totally see this. The group decided during the snowstorm to wait it out, decided to explore some of the mysterious areas in the school. While in the school's basement, they found a couple older classrooms that were blocked by a brick wall. The brick wall was crumbling, so some of the students crawled through the small opening. They discovered some hidden classrooms that were still intact. The original desks were there, and many of, on many of the desks were open student notebooks as if the students had left in mid-lesson. There was a Baby Ruth candy bar on the floor from the early 1900s, and the group even found a love note that had been passed to one female student. It was apparent that this classroom had been abandoned quickly, but why? Wow, Baby Ruth has been around for a long time. Yeah, I did but not they, know found, they found classrooms sealed off from the early 1900s mm-hmm. for whatever reason. That's interesting. That is interesting. That would be really cool to It would be so cool to that. find. Like, there's, this just has happened where... Like a time capsule. Well, they found, like, an old Burger King... Like in a mall I saw somewhere, that. Yes. and then they, this other crazy. one found like an old kitchen where it still had like stuff from, yeah, yeah like still from the 1940s, like cans of spices and stuff. Crazy. That's so cool. Tover shares his own experience. Early in his teaching career, he coached the eighth grade basketball team. During afternoon practice one day, in the gym below this classroom, two large doors that led into the tunnel swung open violently and hit the outer walls. At first, it was felt that this was some kind of freak draft, so the latch was locked and a heavy bench was placed in front of the doors. 
But when these doors open once again, slamming, sending the heavy bench flying, these baseball, these basketball players who were all gang members quickly left. Tover exited the gym so fast he forgot to turn out the lights. Angelo Placuda, who teaches journalism at the school, had his own eerie encounter one night. He and a group of students had stayed late at the school, finishing the layout for the yearbook. He sent his students home around 9 o'clock p.m., but he stayed until 11 p.m. to finish, up some loose ends. As he went to exit the school, he spotted a young teenage girl wearing a 1940s-style blue chiffon dress standing in the red glow of the exit sign. Thinking she was a student, he asked her what she was doing there, and when he got no response, he told her she should go home. She looked over at him with a sad expression. He walked toward her, but stopped when it dawned on him that she was transparent and she was not standing on the floor, but was instead hovering in midair. As he approached, she floated down the hall and disappeared into the darkness. (laughs) That's creepy. That's very creepy. That's what I expect to see in my school. Yeah. By far, Coach Danny McKillop and his track team experienced the most compelling paranormal activity to date that has occurred at this school. As mentioned above, they returned to school late one night in the 1980s after winning the state track championship in Austin. As members of his team put their gear away in the locker room, the coach heard very specific sounds that led him to believe that many other students were in the school, but it was 2 o'clock a.m. He heard many footsteps rushing down the hall above headed in the direction of the school's auditorium. He heard laughter and cheerleaders cheering. He heard many voices singing the school's fight song. It sounded like a pep rally. Had the school arranged some kind of surprise welcome to celebrate his team's big win? He rushed to the second floor to find out what was going on. The sounds he had heard all continued, that is, until he drew closer to the auditorium's entrance door. Then all the noise abruptly stopped. He checked the doors. They were locked, and everything inside was dark and quiet. He quickly went to his office to retrieve his master key. Back in the locker room, he and his team heard the distinctive sounds of the Tiger fight song as well as clapping and cheering. He told his team to stay in the locker room as once more he went to the second floor. Again, as he approached the auditorium, all sounds ceased. With a key, he entered the large room. He searched the auditorium but found no one there. Later, he discovered that no one was in the school that early, early that morning except him and his team. This high school is so surround, is so haunted that they do not have night custodians, despite the size of the school. Workers refuse to be in the building after 9 o'clock p.m. So that just sounds creepy. Odd as these anecdotes are, there are more distinctly supernatural tales of bizarre goings-on at the El Paso High School. Over the years, people have reported slamming doors and the sounds of spectral pep rallies and games going on in the school gym, only to discover the building completely empty. The sighting of ghost girls is a common occurrence at the school, with at least one being tied to a girl who committed suicide by slitting her wrist and jumping to her death from a balcony within the school. Though the hallway and stairwell leading to it have long since been walled off, more than one person has reported seeing a girl standing in that balcony, occasionally leaping from it to her doom. Those brave enough to have snuck into the blocked-off hallways have reported strange slime dripping from the ceiling and a mist that pours through at least once a day, only to quickly evaporate. That's so weird. Like ectoplasm? Yeah. And this this, this is what I thought was super interesting. Uh, another one of the most famous El Paso ghost stories comes from a class picture taken of the 1985 graduating class. Mixed in among a row of teachers is a faded young woman in a white dress. A few people in the picture seem to notice her, and upon questioning, nobody in the picture claims to know who this girl was. Others have insisted that she was not in the original picture and has only faded into the picture over time. 
Whatever the case, this young woman remains another of the strange ghostly mysteries that El Paso High School has to offer. And I will send you this picture. Okay. Yeah, I want to see that. Um... It's the girl. It looks weird. It's in the, the girl in the second row that looks like the girl from the ring standing oh, there. Let's see. Oh, yeah, she stands out. Yeah, right? Weird. But peop, like they've asked people that were in that class, like, who is this girl in the picture? And nobody knows who that girl was. Hmm. And she looks like out of place. But they totally. said there's people in the picture that almost look like they're looking at her. Like, one of the girls on the right side of the picture still looks like they're looking at her. Weird. It's just weird. And since then, there's been a couple other pictures from people that have, like, let me see if I can find some of these here. There were other pictures. I mean, it's definitely creepy. It is. Like, I don't know what to make of that. I, I did read that there were other pictures. I can't find them for now. I might not. I might have saved them on my home computer. Mm. Uh, like there's one of, there's one where this girl is standing in front of the school and she's kind of like posed like like sideways. And in the, one of the windows in the background, it almost looks like this girl's figure like doing the same thing, like, like the head sideways. Mm. Uh, I'll post these other pictures yeah. in the group. Okay. Uh, I found them on Reddit. A Reddit site sent me, and then there was like an article called, for some reason, ghosts still keep showing up in pictures from El Paso High School. There's one that I'm not putting because it was obviously like just a lens flare or something. Oh. But there's a couple that just seem kind of weird. But that picture, the class picture one, I don't know. If that that's is creepy. if that's a legit picture, yeah. that's creepy. Because the girl looks out of place. She looks hazy as opposed to everybody else around her who looks... Who but looks, also looks like she's posing for the picture. It does. It looks like she's posing for the picture. Mm-hmm. And other people, uh, like, look more solid than she does. So I don't yeah. know. Unless that was Photoshopped later. It could have been. But then yeah. people said they've contacted the people from that class, from the class of 1985. And they said, no, that was our picture, but we don't know who this girl That's was. Weird. And from Reddit, somebody says, my sister used to work for the El Paso School District. And the school police were often called out to check on the building. She says that often they would take the canine units. The weird thing is that the dogs would be spooked and would not enter the building or floor that needed to be checked. In all accounts of these hauntings, uh, no one has ever reached out or reported. In all accounts of hauntings of the school, no one has ever reached out or reported about the incidents with the dogs. So it's weird. So, I mean, the school sounds, the El Paso High School sounds like it's yeah, haunted. totally. I lo- like the weird, the pep rally thing is so weird. Yeah. Where, like, there's this energy still of the pep rally in the auditorium that they went up, there's it stopped, they went back down, they could hear it again, mm-hmm. and then they went up, and it wasn't just the one guy. It was like the students that heard this too. Right. So there you go. There are some haunted places around Texas. Texas is haunted. Yeah. If your favorite place wasn't on the list, I'm sorry. I just picked a couple that I wanted to really do. There were quite a it's few It's a big there. state. There's probably a lot. There's probably a lot. Like, I want to visit Austin so bad, you know? But we'll see. We'll see what happens. But I really want to go down there. I want to see the Driscoll Hotel. I want to get a pic. I want that would a picture, be really cool. Get a picture by the 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 painting, the supposedly haunted painting. Mm-hmm. But there you go. And I really would like to see El Paso High School. I would love to do an investigation there yeah. because it sounds so active. But let us know what you guys think of the picture. Like I'm going to post a couple of these pictures in the group. Do you think that's an actual ghost in the picture? It's creepy. You know, it's but it could creepy. it could be photoshopped. You it know, could somebody be. could have photoshopped it and made up a story What's around it. What's compelling is that people 
were contacted about it and yeah. from that time said, no, that yeah, wasn't said, our no, picture. We have no idea who there this person no is. There was no Photoshop back yep. then. So there you go. What do you guys think? Haunted Texas. Very haunted. We probably could end on the two-part Texas one because there's so much stuff in Texas. Yeah, we're already but Texas is, two hours Texas, and 20 minutes Texas in. is a place, a world all its own. Yeah. You know? So there you go. Let me know what you guys think. Should we jump into songs? Let's do it. Let's do it. This first song popped up this past week on my YouTube suggested, and I have no earthly idea why. Hmm. And I clicked on it by accident, and then it started playing, and I was like, huh. <laughs> and now it's like stuck in my head nonstop. I find myself singing it all the time. It was a happy accident. It was a happy accident. So some YouTube comments on this song. Like, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this song. Like, I'd never heard of this dude. I never heard of this song. But it's like catchy and it's like really old. It's from like the mid to or early 2000s, I think. But some of the YouTube comments, somebody writes, just heard this on a compilation album I bought from a local record store. Surprised this didn't get more popular. It's catchy as hell. Somebody else writes, I heard this almost two decades ago on one of my friend's mixes. I never caught the the artist or title, and just now I finally found it. I'm going to sleep good tonight now. Somebody else writes, all these years later, and this song is still a banger. And somebody else writes, my sentiments exactly, no idea why this showed up in my suggested songs, but I thank God that it did. And it is the song Wicked and Weird by Buck65. It's it's a uh, it's like hard to explain. It's almost like a it's got like a countryish beat, but it's like a dancey kind of. Hmm. Yeah, never like it's a heard weird of song, of but I listen to it and I'm like, yeah, I like this. All right. Yeah, it's a guy driving in a, a in his car and there's a puppet dog with him. Like it's it's weird. Okay. It's weird, and the song is all about his car, but it's it's weird, but it's catchy, and it is wicked and weird by Buck sixty five. That right. is my first song. I'm gonna post that in the group. My second song, this is one of those songs from the 90s that I absolutely love and just never got a ton of of airplay for some reason. That one of the YouTube's com- one of the YouTube comments says, "The greatest power trio you've never heard of." This song is just one of those rarities that never gets old. It's produced crisply. The chorus is anthemic. It's a true underrated 90s gem. Somebody else writes, I've been trying to remember this song for ages, for ages. I remember taping this off the radio in 98 and was totally lost and I totally lost it in time. So glad I finally found it. Can we acknowledge that these vocal harmonies and stylizations are about four or five years before their time? This is one of those rare bands that didn't write a bad song. There's usually at least one throwaway on every album, but these guys are just awesome. Somebody else writes, wow, brings on the memories. The 90s have hands down been the best time to be alive. Best music, great movies, and kids had the best toys. Somebody else writes, my God, the middle section of this song is sheer perfection. Somebody else writes, I remember when this one came out in 98 or 99. It was cool then, and it's still a cool song now. Somebody else writes, I love this band. This song is catchy as hell. And lastly, somebody writes, this song is why the words... Tell me I sold out. Go ahead. Have been knocking around inside my head since the late 90s. And it is the song Freak of the Week by the band Marvelous 3. And they the Marvelous 3 albums are awesome. They have like a weird like 80s kind of vibe on some of them. But the singer of Marvelous 3 is Butch Walker. And a lot of people don't know who Butch Walker I've is. I've never heard of any of this. But he is like <laughs> one of the most amazing singer-songwriters of recent times. Like I love Butch Walker. Hmm. Butch Walker is kind of a legend and he was the singer of Marvelous three. And it's like a fun video, 
but it's this it's a song freak of the week and i agree with what the guy said the middle section where like the music kind of goes out and he says tell me i sold out go ahead while they're playing in the school hallway and the kids go running past them it's such a good song Hmm. yeah so that i love this song this is this is on my this is in my top 20 favorite songs of all time but it is freak of the week by marvelous three sweet those are my two songs for this time do we have any questions we have one question an easy question good the person writes easy question for you guys what is the meaning of life Uh, (laughs) easy question (laughs) the meaning of life you know like i thought about this because i i was looking to see if we had any questions this was two days ago so i've had the benefit of two days to think about this i i could have a year to think about this i think i think the meaning of life and it's it it gets lost is just to enjoy being alive Mm -hmm. and to be happy and to be kind to other people. And I think because of the way we are as a society, it, it, we lost that. It just, it just became about working and living with whatever money you get consumer, like buying goods. Mm -hmm. Like I think people forget that the meaning of life is just be happy while you're here and to be kind to other people and just to enjoy the experience. And I think that's something that people forget. Yeah. To me, that's the meaning of life. Just be happy be kind and live your life in the moment. And that's. Yeah, I would agree. Easier. Watch less news, stay off your phone. Yeah. As I pick up my phone. Social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Social media. I'm becoming very, very sour on. Yeah, like, me too. I, I hate seeing what it's doing to kids, mm, you yes. know, but I think the meaning of life is be happy, be kind, live in the moment, enjoy this while you're here. And that's something that's gotten lost over time. Yep. That's my answer. I, Ditto. I okay, that's Krista's answer too. Yeah. So I think that is it for this Texas-sized episode of the Strange Session. We're it is two a, hours and twenty-six minutes. I remember when we used to hit like ninety, and we'd be like, "Dang, this was a long." Yeah. This is a long episode. I'll have to split this in half again. You'll have no, to you show won't. me. I'll have to. I can send it to you. I'll put it in the drive. Like okay. I think you're doing something differently than I do. I'll I edit know. it. I'll put it in the drive, and then you should be okay. Yeah, like but when I'm I, doing when the I put unedited. it into when I put it, yeah, that's right. But if you put it, I'll show you what to do it's after only this. Ten more minutes, though. I'll show you what to do after this. Okay. Like I don't know what you're doing. Uh, because deets? it's always like oh, deets. deets. Email us at thestrangesessions at gmail We are on Twitter at Strange Session, I think, without the Maybe. final s. Krista does a good job on Instagram, where we have several awesome followers. We are on Instagram at the Strange Sessions. You can send postcards and snail mail to the Strange Sessions, PO Box four three four. Manitowoc, Wisconsin, 54221-0434. You can call our lonely little phone line at 920-443-9602. And you can send listener stories to the strange session stories dot or strange session stories at gmail.com, which I don't think I've checked since I started it. Just keep sending them. And if you are the candy lady Clara Crane, you can leave a candy on Krista's windowsill during the night. I yeah, guess. thanks. Knock Do yourself that. out. By the way, this is probably not very impressive to a lot of people, but we have 917 followers on Instagram. I'm cool with that. Yeah, me too. That's yeah. a lot. Yeah. When I, we hit 1,000, that'll be a, yeah. a little a little moment for us. That will be. Holy cow. I know. So that is it for this episode. I think the next one will be a mini mystery where we'll each talk about a haunted location. Yep. And I'm kind of planning out the next couple after that. So we will see where it goes. Are we going to do a missing 411? Yeah. I got to get. I gotta squeeze that in somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we're cut out for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, we're getting close to the end. So I think that's it for this episode. So once again, thank you for even 
If you're still listening at this point in the podcast, thank you even for still listening. If you're still listening at this point in the episode, thank you for listening. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we love you guys. I hope we you do. guys know that we do love you. And it's just... Jen Targ left a, a comment on Instagram that said, we're beautiful people inside and out, and oh. she wishes she could be friends with us in real life. Oh, I wish I could, too. I love Jen. So sweet. I follow her on Facebook, and she leads a fun life so I can live vicariously through other people's lives. Yeah. Uh, but no, we love you guys. We love that that you listen to this. And like I said, it still floors me that you and I have been doing this for so long and we have never flaked. There's never been a, oh shoot, I forgot I was supposed to come over today. Yeah, like yeah. we, I love that we are both so dedicated to this. We're that also we don't, both too stuck in our routines to forget. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Also, if I didn't have this podcast, what else would I be doing at four yeah. o'clock in the morning when I'm sitting up on my computer? That's Probably true. up to no good, that's for sure. <laughs> so I love that I can research this. So thank you guys so much for listening. We love you guys. We love each and every one of you. Krista and I are going to travel the country, come to your door and give you a kiss on the cheek for listening. So thank you guys so much for listening. And I think that's it. So until next time, stay, stay strange. strange.